Welcome to this special Think Tank edition of Renal Cell Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. We gathered six clinical investigators, Drs. Michael Atkins, Dan George, Robert Mozer, David Quinn, Walter Stadler, and Nick Vogelsang, and asked each to first review a paper or presentation or two in the last year in the field, and also to present an actual case from their practice they believed makes an important teaching point relevant to this. The complete citations for these publications can be found in the print piece accompanying this program and with corresponding links at researchtopractice.com. To begin, Dr. Mozer reviews a paper presented at the oral session of the June ASCO meeting, further follow-up on the Phase three trial comparing sunitinib to interferon as first-line therapy of metastatic disease. This paper was presented by Dr. Bob Figlin, and as Dr. Mozer comments, the survival data with sunitinib signaled a major change in the natural history of this disease. We found that the median survival was 26.4 months for sunitinib compared to 21.8 months with interferon. What we realized was that during the course of the study, many of the patients who had been treated with interferon alpha had access to targeted therapies. And our hypothesis was that the survival endpoint in both arms was confounded to some degree by availability of targeted therapy. The clue to this was that the survival was really much better in the interferon arm than we had expected. The study was originally powered expecting that the median survival to interferon alpha would have been 12 months, which was our historical control. And when we saw a median survival of 21.8 months, we assumed that it was from the confounding treatments. The other factor, of course, to consider is that there's a stage migration effect where there's a more favorable prognosis patient population in latter years. And in fact, I think that was a factor as well, since there was a high proportion of patients with favorable and intermediate risk groups. So the overall prognosis of the group was better than what we had seen in the past, but largely because of the median survival at the sunitinib of 26.4 months, we felt that the survival in the interferon arm was impacted by the crossover. And there was some data there on how many people did receive, for example, sunitinib as a crossover. Yes, when the study was underway and the results became available that sunitinib had a longer progression-free survival than interferon alpha, then built into the study was a crossover. And so the patients who were on interferon If they progressed, they were offered sunitinib as part of a trial. Also, best as could be done, the investigators looked to see what kind of treatments patients received after they came off study, and about 60% of patients in both arms received additional therapy after they came off study, with a very high proportion of patients, about 60% in the interferon arm, receiving VEGF-targeted therapy. Nick, can you comment a little bit on sort of the broad perspective of this trial and in light of other agents that have been looked at in the past and what this really means, at least in terms of the benefit part of the equation? Well, I know that this study attracted a great deal of attention at ASCO, and one of the points of contention outside the meeting hall was the fact that the p-value was not quite significant at 0.051. That was for survival? For survival. And a lot of us sort of said, you know, that doesn't affect us. That just simply means that there's crossover. So, and in fact, what Bob said is exactly right. This issue of the 0.051 
is not relevant. And even with further follow-up, we may see an improvement in the survival curves. But what I thought was important was that overall survival in those who did not cross over on the interferon alone arm was 14.1 months. That is spot on to the Negrer study. It's spot on to almost every study of interferon alone in renal cell if you select for good and intermediate risk patients. Clearly, the earlier British trials of interferon versus megase selected a much worse prognostic group of patients whose median survivals were only 8 to 10 months. So this study rings true. It resonates as an accurate reflection of the natural history of kidney cancer that has been profoundly affected by this new targeted agent, sunitinib. Dan, some of the cases that were submitted for us to consider were people who were asymptomatic. What do we know about the potential impact on survival based on treating a patient early as opposed to later? Well, I think it's a great question, Neil, and it's one I think we're still struggling with today. When we talk about the dilution of the survival benefit by the crossover effect, essentially what we're saying is that later treatment with this class of agent can still improve survival and maybe not all the way back to where earlier treatment would be, but cut into it some. And I guess the question is in the patients that do cross over that don't actually survive as long as the patients that start out on a VEGF inhibitor, is that evidence enough to say this is something we should be starting with early on in patients? What's your take on that, Dave? I'm relatively conservative. I think there are a group of patients that are stable for a long period of time and don't grow. So I'll usually, particularly if they're pulmonary metastases and they're asymptomatic, I'll watch them for a while. But when they start to grow, I'll treat them. I don't want to wait for patients to be symptomatic to treat them. But we get many patients who, you know, picked up very early with high-resolution CT scanning. And sometimes you're not quite sure what the little dots are. And so I like to see a little bit of growth before we start them on treatment. And it gives them time to think about the treatment and be educated about what it's about. But overall, this is a very significant advance. Mike? There are clearly more options for patients with kidney cancer, and this is the gold standard for first-line options and what you could potentially achieve by targeting the VEGF pathway. And this is the largest study of a single agent against a reasonable control that's well done. And this is just more data that suggests that not only are patients responding and progression-free survival significantly longer, but overall, the introduction of these drugs, in particular sunitinib in this trial, has changed the natural history of this disease. Dan? The reality is, is when you look at these curves for overall survival, there seems to be a slowing down of the slope or even potentially a flattening out somewhere around 40%. If you look historically at where we've seen sort of this long, sort of indolent natural history of renal cell carcinoma level out, it tends to be more around 10%. Now, this may be, as Bob said, you know, somewhat of a difference in the natural history of this disease anyway with a stage migration and other non-treatment factors. But the reality is, is I think we're seeing that in our waiting rooms. We're seeing more and more patients chronically surviving on these drugs and, you know, and in some situations, you know, with dose reductions or even intermittent therapy. I've been asking people this, has anybody ever done a waterfall plot of duration of response? Because I think one thing docs in practice want to know is, is mixed in there people who are responding for three, four, five years? 
which maybe wasn't the case in Olders. Is that the case with sunitinib, for example, Bob? Well, in the first-line study, this sunitinib versus interferon, we didn't report on the median duration of response. We did report on the median duration of response in the single-arm registration trial of 106 patients, and in that, the median duration of response in second-line therapy was about 11 months. But did you have people, for example, with three, four years responding? Yes. What we're finding is that there is about 15 or 20 percent of patients that remain progression-free at about two years out. So there's definitely a tail to the curve with durable responses on sunitinib going two to three years out. And there's been some reports of long-term responders and so forth in the literature. Walter? So I agree with what everyone said, but I just want to point out that those of us sitting around the table are believers who see a lot of these patients. And certainly the survival data from this particular trial suggests to all of us that we're having a major impact on the disease. I point out, however, that in the community, there are non-believers and mainly the payers who have to fork out a lot of money to pay for these. And, you know, we don't like to pray at the God of the P equal 0.05, but payers who have to put out a lot of money will say, geez, you know, the survival benefit is very modest. There's not much proof that there's this great of a survival advantage. And so why should I pay? And I think that it behooves us here to continue follow-up in some of these studies and to gather other data that demonstrates a little bit more strongly that there is a true survival event benefit, not to us who are the believers, but to the non-believers. And right here in this room in July, we had a lung cancer think tank where, of course, we talked about the big cetuximab study that was presented in ASCA with a five-week survival advantage. You know, you start to compare between the docs in practice are like me and the CME thing looking at different tumors. And to me, I mean, you don't even see in breast cancer very much survival advantage in metastatic disease at all because of the crossover phenomena. Bob, why don't we bring in your case, and then we can kind of start to integrate how patient care sort of ties in with these data. This was a case study of a 71-year-old male that was diagnosed with metastatic renal cell carcinoma. He underwent a nephrectomy, and then he presented for treatment with lung and retroperitoneal metastasis. This patient didn't have significant comorbidities. He had a high-performance status ECOG-0 and was MSKCC favorable risk class. He had tumor imaging by CT scan, which revealed both multiple pulmonary nodules as well as a retroperitoneal metastasis at the site of his nephrectomy. Nick? So, Bob, that is presumably a node that was not dissected at the time of surgery. Is that right? I believe it was a node that was not resected and evolved over time as a local recurrence. So he was treated with sunitinib on a clinical trial. And the sunitinib was administered 50 milligrams orally daily on six-week cycles, four weeks on, two weeks off. And he had his standard evaluations with CT scans and blood tests and clinic visit. The clinic visits were done day 28 and day 42 of the first four cycles and then every other cycle thereafter. And the patient achieved a partial response with regression in size and number of metastases and he's been treated with nine cycles of sunitinib and continues on in sunitinib in the 13th month of therapy. 
And the response is really quite typical where there's regression initially within the first cycle or two, and then the patients are left with a small residual mass or abnormality and continue on treatment with that. And when you started therapy, did he have tumor-related symptoms? No, he was not symptomatic. This patient, while he was on therapy with sinitinib, experienced some of the side effects that have been described with sinitinib. He developed stomatitis on treatment. He also developed grade 2 hypertension and had some mild fatigue. And in his blood counts, we detected grade 3 neutropenia. He also had grade 3 hand-foot syndrome, the classic stomatitis associated with sinitinib. Originally, when patients were treated with sinitinib, they began to complain of soreness and a soft palate. But when we examined them on physical exam, for the most part, there weren't very many of the typical findings we've seen with stomatitis with chemotherapy agents where there's punctate lytic lesions. It's more of a general erythematous, and it's with predominant pain symptoms. Now, did you have to modify his dose? I believe this patient did have some modification of the dose, but I don't believe it was from the stomatitis. I think it was from the hand-foot syndrome. So when he sort of got to the stable dose that I guess he's on right now, what kind of chronic symptomatology is he walking around with? He had hand-foot syndrome, recurrent hand-foot syndrome, which generally occurred on day 28 and then resolved off treatment. He was an avid golf player. And one time he came into clinic and he had a lesion on the finger of both hands. And it was right at the pressure points where the golf club goes through. He holds the golf club. And this is another typical adverse event we see with sinitinib where the hand-foot syndrome occurs largely at pressure points. If you were to ask this man overall, how much has this therapy interfered with your quality of life? You know, would he say a lot, a little? What would he say? I think he'd probably say to some degree. He was very active in a career. He had a very prestigious career. And he was able to work at that career while he was receiving sinitinib, but had some modest alterations in activities of daily living, largely related to the hand-foot-skin reaction. Bob, how do you modify dosing of sinitinib based on toxicity? For the hand-foot-skin reaction, if it's severe, we dose reduced to 37.5, or if there's other recurrent severe or moderately severe toxicities. And if it's recurrent, then dose reduction to 25 milligrams is allowed. And in general, with the sinitinib, treatment is continued unless there is disease progression or drug intolerability. So this is kind of general guidelines for management of toxicities. And Dave, you know, speaking with docs in practice, I think there's a fair amount of concern about the side effects and toxicity of sinitinib. But I even wonder whether there are people turning to Turacel, you know, because they maybe think it's going to be less toxic, but a lot of concerns about that. What do you say to your fellows or to docs in practice who ask you about any pearls about managing people on this drug? Well, I think if you're going to select one of the new agents as first-line therapy, I think sinitinib is the premier agent. And my view is that 80% of patients tolerate these agents relatively well, and I would classify this patient as tolerating it relatively well and not consider stopping therapy. I think that we need to understand that Temsorilimus has very distinct indications in a poor risk group that most community oncologists, they may see one in their career of that poor risk group. And we know that most community oncologists who are in general oncological practice see one or two renal cancers a year. So it's a big decision. And I think that the developed expertise with managing the side effects is therefore a problem. And they need someone to talk to about that periodically because it's not something that they do that often. 
often. And from that perspective, you know, I talk to my patients about the risk-benefit analysis at each visit. And, you know, I'll talk to them and say, well, how are your side effects? Do you think we're getting the bang for the buck from your perspective on this drug? And by far the majority of them are happy to move ahead. The previous conversations I had with people who are getting chronic interferon, you know, she certainly, even for patients responding, as she got beyond six months, that equation was starting to become, you know, very much skewed towards, you know, this is actually really interfering with me trying to do my job, trying to play my golf, that sort of stuff, even the good ones. And so I think the equation has to be reevaluated in each patient. And when I talk to community oncologists, that's what I encourage them to do. And I think we will get increasing community expertise in this area, but it doesn't make it that easy when you don't see that many patients. And I think it's very easy for oncologists to infuse drugs. And in the past, although it is changing, there's been an encouragement for us to infuse drugs from a fiscal perspective. And I think we'll get to talk about the mTOR inhibitors in a couple of settings as we move on. But there are very few patients that I treat first line with Temsorolimus because, you know, even in my practice, it's only about 15 to 20% of poorest patients that we see. Yeah, I think we should clarify that. Walter? So I can only emphasize what Dave said. This is a bit of a different mindset for oncologists. This is really chronic disease management now. And, you know, we're not giving a acutely toxic therapy for a short period of time and expecting, you know, some good outcome and then just monitoring. This is really a disease where we have to administer therapy over a prolonged period of time. Many of these toxicities are not serious in regards to what we used to think as oncologists, but are quite bothersome on a long-term time basis. And so the reassessing the issue of risk and benefit, addressing the issues of quality of life, and managing these patients over time, I think, becomes an important new way of looking at how to manage the cancer. What about the issue of when you stop it? What kind of surgical procedure or medical procedure? In the studies that were performed there was always a four-week break between surgery, major surgery, or radiation and initiating sunitinib. In clinical practice, there hasn't been good guidelines established by data. I think it depends on the degree of surgical intervention, whether it's a major surgery or a minor surgery, and how important it is to have a patient on therapy with regard to their own progression as far as the time between a surgery and starting treatment. So if it's a minor surgical procedure, my own practice is to have the patient off sunitinib for a week or two weeks. But if it's a major surgical procedure, then I think the four-week is what's been supported by the data. And Nick, obviously with bevacizumab, we were very sensitized to the issue of wound healing and this kind of delay. What do we know about sunitinib and wound healing? Well, the issue that Bob just brought up is not exactly the same as the scenario with bevacizumab because of the substantially longer half-life and the different mechanism of action. So the bevacizumab presents more issues with wound healing and requires much more thoughtful interruption of therapy and timing And that literature is well known to most practicing oncologists because of the full fox of Aston data in colorectal cancer and hepatic resection. So we don't need to belabor that point. But the Sutent is apparently less toxic in terms of postoperative bleeding complications, etc. Any other comments about Bob's patient? Just to be a little contrarian, we would probably discuss with this patient high-dose interleukin-2 as an initial treatment 
making the point that he's asymptomatic at the present time, even though his disease has grown in a year since surgery. They still could grow a long way before he has symptoms from his disease and that the high-dose interleukin-2 provides an opportunity to shrink the disease, potentially make it go away, and to have him potentially need no therapy afterwards. So it's the only treatment in that setting that has the opportunity to get what the patient actually wants, which is to be cancer-free and healthy off therapy. And so we would discuss that with the patient, and when presented with that opportunity, particularly a patient like this, many of them would choose that opportunity, and there's not any solid data that delaying starting a VEGF pathway inhibitor such as sunitinib compromises their ability to respond to that treatment. The response rates when sunitinib was given after interferon or cytokine therapy or interleukin-2 are still around 40%. There's no solid data on whether median progression-free survival is altered by giving it after interleukin-2. And in fact, I think the data from the expanded access studies actually suggested that people who had prior cytokines and then went on sunitinib actually had a longer progression-free survival than those who started right on sunitinib, and there may be reasons for that that have to do with patient selection. But for someone like this, I think high-dose IL-2 is certainly an option, and we, because of the side effects of therapy and because starting with a VEGF pathway inhibitor is a non-curative strategy has side effects, and patient likely will have side effects until their disease becomes resistant and will be on treatment maybe with two-week breaks or some holidays along the way until they die. It's a palliative strategy, and I think that patients deserve an opportunity for something better. Just to clarify, this man's 71 years old. How do you look at age when you think about interleukin? Well, we say physiologically 70. And so this would require an evaluation of his heart and his lungs and things like that. But we've treated people in their 70s if they were in good shape and could pass a stress test and had good lung function and decent kidney function. And a lot of that information that we would need to know about him was not presented in this case, but it's certainly something that we would look at and discuss with him. How about 80 plus? Certainly not. Not. Okay. So, Bob, did you discuss that with him? Yes, and you know, in the paradigm for renal cancer now, there's multiple options for treatment. It's not just one. So we always, with our patients, have a very detailed and comprehensive discussion about what the different options are. And in patients that have favorable intermediate risk renal cell carcinoma first line, we always discuss with them the high-dose interleukin-2 data, and this is an option for them. And certainly if high-dose IL-2 is given to these patients, then I strongly encourage referral to major centers by people who give a lot of high-dose interleukin-2. Dan? You know, I would just say that, you know, I I treat all GU oncology, and this is the setting is by far my longest consultation is the newly diagnosed metastatic renal cell carcinoma patient. There's so much information now regarding these multiple therapy options. There's a lot of thought that takes place, as Dr. Atkins alluded to, going into, you know, who's an appropriate candidate for high-dose IL-2. I mean, this is something I think, you know, patients really need to recognize up front. And I think physicians in managing folks with newly diagnosed metastatic renal cell carcinoma, you know, ought to take advantage of some of the academic centers around that have those offerings to be able to help put all that stuff into context. So, David, if this man, 71 years old, good shape, golfing, et cetera, said to you, what's the chance that I might die because of the interleukin? What's the chance I might be cured? Well, I think that 
at our institution, the chance of him dying from interleukin-2 toxicity is certainly less than 1%. You know, we've treated more than 200 patients since I arrived there over eight years. We've had one fatality linked directly to interleukin-2. And what's his chance of cure? Well, in an unselected paradigm like this, I think it's somewhere between 8 and 12%. And I think it's not unreasonable to talk to him about it. As patients get older, they don't tolerate the therapy as well. And we treat patients in their early 70s sometimes, but it's just a matter of what sort of shape they're in. And then we go through very detailed testing in terms of their cardiorespiratory assessment before considering this. But I think it cuts to a broader sort of issue, and that is there are a group of patients who might benefit from IL-2 out there, and we do need to refine them more, and we're working on that. And then there are other larger popular, and I'm talking about the maybe the tumour they have, classifying it, as well as some other factors, but there are populations of patients in the world that are going to get cytokines first. And, for example, in the Asia-Pacific region, we were recently in Japan at the JUA meeting where many of them will continue to use low-dose subcutaneous interferon because their progression-free survival data suggests that Japanese patients have about a double progression-free survival compared to American patients. And I know from some data that we've seen from other Asian countries that it seems to be similar. And so the patients there seem to do well with that therapy and they will continue to use it as their first-line treatment. Mike, can you talk a little bit about the follow-up paper of the Avorin trial that was presented at ASCO by Bernard Escudier? This is a more in-depth look at the Avorin trial data. Avorin trial involved a European study of patients with advanced kidney cancer who were randomly assigned to interferon plus placebo or interferon plus bevacizumab. It was initially reported out at ASCO in 2007 that the interferon plus bevacizumab arm produced approximately a doubling of the response rate and a approximate doubling of progression-free survival compared to interferon alone. In this presentation, Dr. Escudier went more into depth to look at the differential effect of bevacizumab on toxicity to look at some of the baseline characteristics, either clinical or pathological subgroups, and to see how bevacizumab might have influenced response or side effects in those particular groups, and also to look at some potential predictive markers of response, and then had the first preliminary look at overall survival. So the key points in this presentation included that the benefit of adding bevacizumab was similar across all three risk groups. The good intermediate, which represented the largest group of patients on the trial, and also poor risk population, which included about 60 patients on each arm. As anticipated, as the prognosis got worse, the patients did worse, but the benefit related to the addition of bevacizumab was relatively constant across all those groups. Second, they looked at histology, and there was somewhere around 85 patients or so who had mixed histology, not just clear cell, and it appeared that there was benefit for bevacizumab in the population of patients with mixed histology that was close relative to interferon alone to what was seen in the population 
as a whole. There was no clear evidence that the creatinine clearance at baseline influenced the amount of bevacizumab that could be administered. It did look, however, that the amount of interferon might be slightly less in people with reduced creatinine clearance, and there did not appear to be any impact on outcome based on baseline creatinine clearance in terms of tumor response. There also was a look to see whether certain things could be predictive markers of benefit. One look, which was something that had been reported in other studies, I think in breast cancer studies, that hypertension might predict for benefit for bevacizumab. And so there was an examination of that in this particular trial. And there was about 10 or 15% of patients who had grade 2 or higher hypertension. And it did not appear to be a significant association between development of hypertension and benefit, although there was a slightly longer progression-free survival in those patients who developed hypertension. Was it really powered to look at that? Was there enough patients? Well, there's not as much hypertension with bevacizumab therapy as maybe has been reported in some of the other drugs used, such as exitinib, where that association was reported in kidney cancer melanoma, and I believe in a pancreatic or some other cancer model. But then again, bevacizumab was what was looked at by the breast cancer group, and hypertension with bevacizumab was shown to be associated with better outcome in breast cancer. The second point is they looked at VEGF levels, and baseline VEGF did not predict for outcome. And the final point, which is a key point, is that They took a first look at median overall survival, and the median overall survival for the interferon plus placebo arm was close to 20 months, and it had not yet been reached for the bevacizumab plus interferon arm. And this, I think, point is very similar to the point that we were making with the sunitinib studies, is that overall patients are doing better than they used to do, even if you start on interferon. If you cross over, which many of these patients did, the outcome for overall survival appears to be longer. And we've shifted the median time to death for patients with kidney cancer from what was 10 to 13 months in the 1990s to probably in excess of 20 months with the advent of VEGF pathway inhibitors. Dan, I remember we talked about this paper after ASCO, and one of the questions I had, and I think they presented some data on dose reduction and interferon and benefit, and the question oncologists have, which is how much toxicity is being added by using interferon as opposed to BEV alone, which of course this didn't really look at, but also how much benefit is really being obtained by adding an interferon compared to, say, BEV alone. I think any time you look at a combination, you have to look at the risk-benefit profile. And I think if you look at the toxicity section here, there's clearly a fair amount of fatigue and asthenia associated with interferon alone. And that's with interferon and placebo of 15% grade 3 versus 22% for bevacizumab interferon. So it looks like the majority of the grade 3 fatigue is associated with that interferon dose. And You know, I think that's something that probably needs to be studied prospectively to really know for sure. But it appears that, you know, the benefit here of the interferon, to some extent, may be mitigated by the increased toxicity. Whether or not there's a therapeutic index, that is to say, a lower dose of interferon that won't be associated with that degree of toxicity, but still give you the potential added benefit with bevacizumab, I'm not sure we know yet, but it is interesting that interferon 
does seem to have activity at a wide range of doses. And there may be some benefit to real low-dose interferon. Bob, what was your take on that? I mean, they presented the data when the patients were dose-reduced and tried to, I think, tried to say the benefit looked about the same. I think the most interesting aspect of the Scudier presentation was the data that he presented of progression-free survival with patients getting bevazivimab plus full-dose interferon versus those that require dose reductions. Because one of the big questions that we have is if and when this combination becomes available in the U.S., do doctors have to give interferon with bevazivimab or is there equal efficacy with bevazivimab monotherapy? And we just don't know the answer to that question. There's very limited data with bevazivimab monotherapy in first-line treatment. So the study attempts to get to that by looking at a subset analysis. And it's certainly not definitive. It's limited by the fact that the patients all started on interferon plus bevazivimab. And it's not really a fair comparison to just simply look at the ones that had doses reduced on therapy. I think what it does do, though, is is it does tell community doctors that when they are treating people with the combination, if they see toxicities related to interferon, then they should certainly feel comfortable in terms of reducing dose for better quality of life at the patients, and that it seems that in that setting, the progression-free survival will be maintained. Walter, of course, oncologists are hearing about BEV and breast, lung, colon, ovary. We're talking about it all the time. And in general, thinking about it with chemotherapy. And yet, this is one of the situations, as far as I know, maybe you can review what's been seen with BEV monotherapy. So the data with bevacizumab monotherapy, as Bob mentioned, is very limited. There was a small randomized phase 2 trial performed at the NCI in patients who had had prior high-dose IL-2 that showed some improvement in progression-free survival. And the metrics used in that particular trial were much different than the metrics in the current trial, so we can't compare numbers here. I think that some of the data about dose reduction, some of the toxicity that's been associated with interferon will lead people to say, geez, you know, I don't really want to use the interferon. I'm just going to use the bevacizumab. And there may be some logic to that, but there's very little data. And we have to be reminded that interferon has not only immunotherapeutic effects, may have anti-angiogenic effects. It certainly does in the laboratory. And the contribution of interferon to this combination therapy is unknown. We've never done a trial of bevacizumab with or without interferon. So I think it remains an open question. And if you, know, you want to practice evidence-based medicine, you should use bevacizumab plus interferon with appropriate dose reductions for toxicity. Nick? I would second that. I believe that we have explored, and I will talk about later, the addition of bevacizumab to sunitinib, but, you know, that is going to have some toxicities that Bob's group will report. The interferon bevacizumab is, in fact, dual blockade. There may be some logic to it that we have not necessarily fully explored. So I would keep a very open mind. I remember the very first patient, one of the oncologists in Reno treated, he called me and said he was going to use off-protocol interferon and bevacizumab. And I said, well, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You shouldn't do that. And he went ahead and did it anyway. And three years later, the patient is still in a near-complete remission. So I think we need to keep a very open mind about this combination. It may be actually quite a good combination. 
So Dave, I mean, it's kind of surprising, and I know docs have asked me this, why we don't have more data on BEV alone. Do we know whether, I mean, have objective responses been seen? Are there enough patients out there? I think you see objective responses. We have, since the Jim Yang data, which was really put together 99, 2000, and then published in the New England Journal of Medicine, we know that 10% of patients on the high dose in that mainly post-interleukin-2 treated group of patients had partial responses and by today's criteria there are other patients that had minimal responses reduction and disease volume. So it has some activity from that perspective. We just don't know the outcomes and we now have two large studies that are looking at an outcome of the addition of BEV to interferon that point in a particular direction. And we'll just go back to a comment you made earlier. Yes, BEV is being used in breast cancer and colon cancer and lung, but in those diseases, it's being used with other agents that induce apoptosis. And so the issue then becomes in kidney cancer, is it so unique with the issues related to von Hippel-Lindau mutational silencing and upregulation of the various pathways, including VEGF, that BEV alone is useful? And we don't know that. And I agree with the other people around the table to say that if you want to use BEV, then I think at this stage, you probably need to give it in combination with interferon. The suggestion from the Escudier data, very well pointed out by Bob, is that if you have to drop the dose of interferon, you can do it. That doesn't mean you should start at a lower dose, but none of us really know what the dose of interferon should be anyway. The docs in practice do have actually experience with bevacizumab alone from participating in the NSABP adjuvant colon study, which continues the BEV after the chemo for a year. 2,600 people were in that study. A lot of docs around the country put patients on that study, and obviously it's an antibody, a very favorable profile. Of course, the benefit issue, as you all are saying, is out on the table, but Again, we hear a lot of concerns about the side effects and toxicity interferon as well as sunitinib. Mike? So there is one other study that's already published that looks at bevacizumab alone, first line, in patients with kidney cancer, and that's bevacizumab plus placebo versus bevacizumab plus tarceva, randomized phase two study that Ron Bukowski published in JCO. And that shows that Bevacizumab alone has a approximately nine-month progression-free survival and about a 10 to 13% response rate. Both are slightly less than the results of the bevacizumab-interferon combination in the Avorin trial and in the CALGP trial, suggesting that interferon may actually add something. And the second place where we'll get some information about this is the ongoing BEST trial, which has a bevacizumab alone control arm, which will look at bevacizumab compared to various combinations. And there's a move afoot, and hopefully this will actually be included in the trial to add a fifth arm to look at bevacizumab plus interferon as the easiest way to probably get a randomized comparison of that impact, even though it'll be at the phase two level. I just want to comment on the interferon dose adjustment. I think Bob is exactly right that if patients are having side effects from interferon, you should feel comfortable reducing the dose. But it clearly does not indicate that you should start with a lower dose because nobody in that study started with a lower dose. And the people, since interferon is a biologic agent, it's possible that the side effects correlate with its biologic effect. And you're titrating to a biologic effect rather than to a dose. Just kind of curious, Dan, if you could get 
bevacizumab for use in renal cell cancer, and let's just say it was inexpensive, so we should kind of just focus on the clinical risk-benefit question. Sure. How, if at all, would you be using it? Well, I think it would be a very attractive agent to consider because of its side effect profile. Its mode of administration may be advantageous for some patients as well who might have significant co-pays with oral pharmaceutical costs. It is an agent, as you mentioned, that many community physicians are very familiar with from other disease settings. So an agent they're used to managing the side effect profile for. And I think you'd see a lot of use of that, particularly in the low and intermediate risk group patients. With interferon or alone? Well, I mean, I think that's something that remains on the table, as we've talked about. I don't think we really have definitively said that bevacizumab alone is equivalent. The question comes down to the risk benefits, and can you start with an agent like that? Can you add interferon as we do sequencing now in many circumstances, and is that something that is therefore going to undermine the second or third line efficacy? I think those are all unanswered questions with the agents we have now, much less these agents that aren't approved yet for kidney cancer in the U.S. So I think it remains to be seen. I think there would be a lot of use. I think that I would, in my own practice, find patients that perhaps weren't strong enough to tolerate or just don't tolerate tyrosine kinase inhibitors very well and, you know, that bevacizumab alone or with interferon is a reasonable alternative. We want to also talk about some of the ongoing studies, both to get people interested in participating as well as to sort of understand where things are heading. And Mike, can you comment a little bit more about the BEST study? Sure. It's a randomized phase two trial looking at bevacizumab alone or bevacizumab plus temsorolimus, serafinib plus bevacizumab or serafinib plus temsorolimus. There are four arms estimated to have 90 patients in each arm. It's a pick-the-winner design with the hope that one of the combinations would be better than the single agent and the other combinations and would exceed a 14-month median progression-free survival. The goal, I believe, as we envision it now, and it's gone through many evolutions, is to identify the most active combination that could be compared with sinitinib in a phase three trial. And that was actually one of the most common questions we got from the docs, which was, are there going to be trials comparing some of these approaches directly? They're kind of frustrated because everything seems sort of separate. You know, this best style reminds me a little bit of a new CLGB trial in breast where metastatic disease, everybody gets BEV, and then there are three different chemos, kind of similar. I think it's pretty attractive for docs in practice in terms of putting somebody on that trial. Well, it does give people an opportunity to look at combinations, to get access to drugs that can be potentially put together and to use doses of those drugs that have been vetted in phase one trials to be tolerable and to have guidelines for dose modifications that they can follow. Having done one of those phase one trials, I know it would have been very hard for a community doctor to figure out what dose to use and how to manage those patients if they didn't have the experience of the group that went through that. And that, again, was one of the most common questions we got is where are things heading in terms of combinations of biologics. And actually, I think your case kind of would tie into this. So why don't we present that? Sure. So this fits into the discussion because it's someone who went on the bevacizumab and serafinib phase one trial. So this is a 59-year-old man 
who presented in September of 2005 with hematuria at a CT scan that revealed a 7-centimeter right kidney mass, a small left kidney mass, and small bilateral pulmonary nodules. He underwent a right nephrectomy with pathology revealing clear cell cancer, grade 2 of 4. Follow-up scans done three or four months or so after surgery showed progression in the contralateral renal mass as well as the lung nodules. So at that point, he was begun on high-dose interleukin-2 in May of 2006, and he received that without response. Following that treatment, his disease progressed slowly, and he was observed until March of 2007, or somewhere around 9 to 10 months. And at that point, he was enrolled in the phase 1 protocol of bevacizumab and serafinib. I believe he was on what would be the now phase 2 dose of 200 milligrams of serafinib a day and 5 milligrams per kilogram of bevacizumab. And what was his clinical situation when he entered the trial in terms of where was the tumor, what kind of symptoms was he having? He had a growing lesion in his contralateral kidney and lung nodules, but was asymptomatic, but it was clear that if we watched longer, he would get into trouble with renal insufficiency or other problems. What was his quality of life at that point? His quality of life was quite good. So what happened on the serafinib and Bev? So he was at the dose that was shown to be tolerable, so he tolerated it quite well. He received 16 cycles of therapy going from March of 2007 to June or so of 2008. He had initial disease response. He had some typical side effects associated with treatment, including some hypertension, some hand-foot syndrome, and some fatigue, but was, I think, functional through all that. I think the side effect profile is not that dissimilar from what Bob described in a patient receiving sunitinib. Has that generally been what's seen with this specific combination? We'll get into it when we talk about that abstract in more detail. At the higher doses, it certainly was more toxic than this. And this is a, you have to realize this is a quarter of the standard dose of serafinib combined with half of the standard dose. And, and the bevacizumab is given every two weeks, right? Every two weeks. But yet he responded to it. Yes. Was it a partial response? Partial response. And we'll talk that, you know, in the phase one trial, we had 52% response rate. So similar to what is seen with the most active of the VEGF pathway inhibitors. So in June of 2008, we were noting that he had a large mass developing on his deltoid muscle. We initially felt that might be a hematoma. We watched it for a while. It kept getting bigger. Eventually, we got a scan of it and it looked solid, and we biopsied it, and it was growing tumor. We then staged him because we were trying to put him on a different trial, which included a head. His lung disease was still stable. His renal disease was no bigger than when it was at its nadir, but he had new CNS metastases, and so he was treated for CNS metastases with CyberKnife, and once he recovered from that, was begun on sunitinib, which he started in July of 2008, and is tolerating reasonably well, has stable disease at his first follow-up visit. Was the histology on the 
new deltoid lesion substantially more anaplastic than his previous lesions? Or we only have any, a fine needle aspirate, uh, so uh, we don't have a good biopsy, yeah. but we hope to get one in the future on that lesion. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I think it's worth pointing out, Neil, that a lot of the patients with intermediate and good risk disease have well-differentiated clear cell that is quite remarkably homogeneous on pathology, whereas these late relapses, particularly after prolonged periods of time on anti-angiogenic therapy, can become very pleomorphic with large cells and sarcomatoid features. It really does suggest that there is a evolution or a clonal evolution of the disease that, as you just heard, that metastatic lesion is resistant, but yet the lung nodules and the kidney are still responding. So, you know, there may be a role for, for example, resection of the metastatic site like that, or some local therapy with radiation following the surgery, and then continuation of an anti-angiogenic agent. Is that something you might consider, Mike? Well, remember, he also has CNS metastasis. Right, right, so right. You have to change. influence his ultimate outcome, he has this lesion here, he's asymptomatic from it, we radiated the CNS, and we need some sort of systemic therapy, so we went to sunitinib. If he were really symptomatic from his shoulder lesion, or if it was a bony lesion, we would try to fix that first before we went on sunitinib. Walter? Yeah, my comment about these combination therapies is that there's a tendency to believe that, you know, more is better. That's sort of the oncology paradigm, but sometimes more is just more. And certainly when you combine two agents, we know we get more toxicities. We know we have to sometimes dose reduce, as was the case here. And I think we have to be careful, especially as we'll talk further on with these sequential responses with sequential VEGF pathway targeted agents. Is it better to use things up front in combination, or is it better to use things in sequence? I don't know what the answer is, but just assuming that doing things together at once is better, I think, is dangerous. I'm intrigued, Mike, that this patient responded to such low doses. What do we know about this combination and dose and effect, and what do we know in general about this combination? Well, we're doing a phase two trial at this dose, so we'll see what the response rate is overall. But in the phase one trial... There was a dose effect in terms of activity, and the response rate was 52%, but many of those patients who responded were started out at doses in excess of the MTD. And so it remains to be seen whether if you started out at this dose, you can produce that same 52% response rate. And I just want to reiterate Walter's point that this is another example of hitting the VEGF pathway. This is taking a drug that doesn't work as well at hitting that pathway, doesn't work as well as sunitinib does at hitting that pathway, namely serafinib, and adding another drug, bevacizumab, to it so that you're hitting the pathway harder. And that shows you that you can improve the activity of both of those drugs by hitting the pathway harder. But it remains to be seen whether that's better than just a single agent that hits that pathway cleanly as hard as possible. And I think we are seeing with this trial and potentially the exitinib data, that there's a limit to how far you can go in hitting the VEGF pathway before you start to get side effects and to what the activity is. And what you can expect to see if you can hit that pathway well is response rates that push 
50%, and progression-free survivals, the medians that are in the 14 to 16-month range. And what I would like to see is not so much combinations that are vertical and hitting a particular pathway, but a drug that cleanly hits that pathway as hard as possible and doesn't have a lot of the off-target side effects. And there are some drugs that have the potential to do that, and there's a role for still studying those in the first line. Well, I would just add briefly that Bob, I believe, is chairing an international trial of the next agent, pazopinib, directly comparing it to sunitinib. And I've heard some of my colleagues criticize that trial for a Pepsi or Coke trial design. But the reality is, is that pazopinib may, in fact, be hitting the target more aggressively and cleaner. And unfortunately, with Pfizer owning both axitinib and sunitinib, it's probably not likely that they will compare them head to head. But I wouldn't rule that out. And that would be an interesting trial design as well. You mentioned the priority trials in the United States, and we talked about the best trial. The trial that Nick mentioned is the other large phase three trial that's ongoing that physicians should consider their patients for. It's a phase three head-to-head comparison of pazopinib, which is a new tyrosine kinase inhibitor that shows a high level of activity and a different toxicity profile than sunitinib compared to sunitinib as the reference standard. And it's a close to 800-patient trial That is going on internationally, but it's predominantly a U.S. trial for U.S. physicians. It's anticipated that probably half the accrual will take place in the United States. Walter, can you comment about Ron Bukowski's paper on serafinib in elderly patients? So there was a large number of patients who were enrolled on this expanded access protocol. And in this particular abstract, we looked at the tolerability and response in patients who were greater than 65 and have now also looked at in data that is to be coming out in patients older than 75. And the bottom line is that the toxicity profile of the elderly patients, the response rate were very similar to the younger patients, basically giving support to use of this drug in patients who might be a little bit older and may have other comorbidities. Any other thoughts or comments about this study? Anything there that a doc in practice would need to know about? I think it speaks to the safety of the drug and efficacy in older patients. There are similar data that I think are impressed to come from the target study, which was the randomized second-line study of serafinib versus placebo that suggests that Older patients, by whatever definition you want to use, had a similar benefit from the drug. And so I think these studies are important. If we could do a head-to-head comparison of serafinib and sunitinib in patients over age 65, Bob, what do you think we would see in terms of side effects and toxicity? Well, difficult to say. I mean, I think that the sunitinib showed a high level of efficacy compared to interferon in first line. The serafinib experience was a randomized phase two compared to interferon that showed no difference in progression-free survival or in response rate compared to interferon. How about the side effects and toxicity of the two agents and older people? They haven't been compared. The efficacy of sunitinib and first-line therapy and the lack of information for efficacy of serafinib over interferon has largely resulted in sunitinib being the predominant agent first-line therapy. And the United States. Now, there are some 
selected patients that we do offer serafinib to. And those are generally patients that we feel on an individual basis would not tolerate sinitinib. One of the populations that I personally consider serafinib is in those patients that have poor cardiac function or a recent cardiac event. I don't really think it's fair to make a blanket statement that serafinib would be better tolerated and better effective in elderly patients based on this kind of data. I think if you're going to extrapolate, you actually need to do this study. And my own sense is that you know the efficacy and so forth of sinitinib was looked at by age and was still considerably more effective in the older population than interferon. So it may be that one is a little bit better tolerated than another, but efficacy is, in my opinion, the primary goal, and I think the efficacy of sinitinib would remain higher. Mike? Yeah, I agree with Bob's comments in terms of efficacy. We will get a look, actually, at the relative toxicity of the agents from the adjuvant trial. When do you think we're going to get that kind of data? Well, the adjuvant trial, which is a comparison of serafinib or sunitinib to placebo in patients with resected medium to high-risk renal cancer, has been accruing quite rapidly. It's now over 1,000 patients. The ultimate accrual goal is about 13 30 or so, and it's anticipated that sometime in 2009, it'll hit that accrual goal. It's a year of therapy for each, and it may take a while before we get the events to report on the efficacy, but we may get an early read on the relative toxicity because everybody will have finished therapy by 2010. You would think that would be pretty soon, maybe. Do we know anything about that? Well, one of the first things we'll get a look at, and it's possible this will get reported out well in advance of the trial, is a mini-trial that is included in this particular study that looks at cardiac effects of the agents. Mm, Interesting. And I think it's looking at somewhere around the first 60 patients. And so those patients probably are already finished therapy. And so that data will likely be available. It wouldn't be surprising if we saw it within the next year reported if the investigators in ECOG were willing to report a component of that trial early. What are the cardiovascular exclusion criteria for the study? I don't think there's an ejection fraction requirement. There's a requirement for sort of exclusion of recent events and symptomatic congestive cardiac failure by implication in one of the exclusions. But no, I don't think it's selected. So I think that the cardiovascular evaluation that's done in a subset is going to be actually quite interesting. And of course, these are not the same patients that we treat with metastatic disease. That's a different deal. I've been a little disappointed that we have not put together some extended experience of some first-line patients with cardiac dysfunction, because that's a question that comes up in community practice. And I'd really like to know whether serafinib's a safe drug, an effective drug in patients that have got a decreased ejection fraction. What do you do with patients that produce the question because they've got atrial fibrillation, which is a common condition in our population that we're treating here. The median ages for the development of renal cancer and atrial fibrillation are almost exactly the same. Walter? So I want to emphasize some of the cardiovascular toxicities of these agents. I mean, I think that this is something we can't minimize. Um, we talk about, you know, 10, 20% hypertension rates in the clinical trials. But when we look carefully, increases in blood pressure occur in 
probably two-thirds to three-fourths of patients. And we're talking about chronic treatment. We're talking perhaps about years of treatment when we do these things sequentially. We're talking about an elderly population that may have multiple other comorbidities, including cardiovascular disease. We know we see cardiovascular events, even with short follow-up in the current phase three trials, as an increased risk of cardiovascular and cerebrovascular events. I think that paying attention to the cardiac toxicities from these agents is going to be an increasing important issue in terms of management. What do you say to your patients when they say, what exactly is the risk? Well, I tell patients that there is a risk of a cardiovascular or cerebral vascular event on the order of 3% in comparison to 1% in controls. That's what the randomized trials would suggest. I tell them that they need to get their blood pressure under control. I tell them that they should be on their aspirin. And Are you that, talking about sunitinib or both? I'm talking about any of these agents, really. Walter, why don't you present your patient, the older but younger man? This was an elderly gentleman who was actually in great shape. He was 70 years old, but going on 60, actually lived in Oklahoma and flew in to see us in Chicago on a regular basis, was on one of the original serafinib trials and was on that trial for three years. And it was complicated by diarrhea, weight loss. He had greater than 10% of lean body mass loss over time. Some of this hand foot that Bob described earlier, which can lead to hyperkeratosis and can have a significant impact on quality of life. And then had to be on multiple agents for his hypertension, when he progressed on the uh, just before, before you yeah. get to that, could you just kind of go back? What was his situation when he was put into the trial? Where was the tumor? Did he have a response? Or So, yeah, he had a response. So he had lung disease only at the time with both mediastinal lymphadenopathy and pulmonary nodules. And we encouraged and actually did observe him for a while because he was asymptomatic, had a slow natural history. Biopsy-proven? Biopsy-proven metastatic disease. What was biopsy? I believe one of the lung lesions. So he was on observation for a while? He was on observation for a while and then entered into the trial, mainly because he was asymptomatic at the time he entered. So he actually received serafinib for three years? Yes. And overall, I mean, you mentioned all these problems, but overall, sort of, what was his quality of life? Overall, it was pretty good. He was happy because his tumors were shrinking and didn't grow. I mean, so he tolerated these side effects. He continues to maintain a business. He continues to travel with his family. And in some ways, he's happiest because he's doing something and his tumors weren't growing, although there were multiple times we discussed, you know, at what point is enough enough and you ought to take a break. And how, you mentioned the fact that the hypertension was a little problematic. What did you finally, kind of what kind of process did you go through and what did you end up on? So we ended up initially treating him with calcium channel blockers, which we found to be you know, most effective in this kind of situation. But by the end, he was on calcium channel blockers, diuretics, beta blocker, ACE inhibitor, and close involvement with a cardiologist. Roughly, what fraction of patients have this kind of degree of difficulty? There's probably about 10% of patients that have significant problems with hypertension, multiple agents that are controlled. And he had no prior history of hypertension? No, he had prior history. He did. Prior. So he was on treatment he when was he on started. treatment when we started. And how bad of a problem was the diarrhea? Once you, were you able to sort of make it kind of be not a problem? So... It's interesting that the diarrhea was not something he complained about a lot. 
he said, well, geez, you know, I'm having a little bit of loose stools and I'm going to the bathroom a little bit more often, but it doesn't bother me. But it's something that, you know, we as the physicians had to point out to him when after about a year and a half, you know, he was clearly losing weight and muscle mass due, I believe, in large part due to his uh, diarrhea. Interesting. Thing, like malabsorption or what? Hopefully malabsorption. Wow. And in fact, we have now identified a number of patients who have had apparent pancreatic insufficiency. Wow on serafinib, which we've had to treat with enzyme replacement. It's funny to hear about diarrhea more and more with a lot of these novel agents. I never really thought about, you know, maybe malabsorption. Are you saying maybe this could be the primary mechanism? It may very well be, whether it's a pancreatic insufficiency, huh. whether it's a malabsorption, but there's something along those lines because these patients complain not about the voluminous watery diarrhea, but just soft stools that over time lead to weight loss. Did you ever look at his stool and see if there was fat? Yeah, we looked, we looked for fat, and he didn't happen to have fat, but others have. Interesting. Any other comments from the group here about the diarrhea? Mike? This weight loss associated with malabsorption or diarrhea was the major side effect of the combination of serafinib and bevacizumab huh. at the full dose. Even though people had hand-foot syndrome and they had hypertension, the major reason why we couldn't keep people at the top dose was that they were losing weight and they could lose 5 to 10 pounds per cycle just from being on that combination. And I think it's primarily a serafinib effect, but potentially exacerbated by bevacizumab because I think it was clearly more than what we would see with serafinib alone and suggests that the VEGF pathway plays a pretty important role in the function of pancreas or absorption in the GI tract or something that you know, may have other implications in the future. That's fascinating, Dan. I think I just kind of flashed on lapatinib and breast cancer where diarrhea is a problem. I don't remember anybody talking about looking at, you know, what's really going on there. I mean, people give Imodium and that's it. Right, right. And I think we shouldn't lose sight that Imodium does work for a lot of this diarrhea. So there, there probably is sort of different mechanisms of diarrhea in this patient population. We have seen some patients elevate pancreatic enzymes associated with these drugs, lipase and other things that we haven't necessarily one-to-one associated with the degree of diarrhea. So to some extent, you know, we don't overmanage those enzyme changes. But the point I just wanted to make was that I think it's still appropriate not to necessarily consider everybody with diarrhea on these agents as malabsorbers, sure. but to treat them, you know, as sort of more traditional diarrhea with anti-diarrhea. Although I guess the clue would be weight loss. Yeah, Yeah. I want to jump in there. One of my patients had had a pancreatectomy for metastatic disease and had just terrible problems. Renal cell? Renal cell, yeah. Wow. She's one of these long-term survivors. Clear cell, well-differentiated. Pancreatectomy was in 1998 and became diabetic, etc. But her tolerance, though, of serafinib was remarkably poor. But yet her tolerance of sunitinib has been substantially better. And I don't understand a lot of these diarrhea side effects, but yet other patients with sunitinib will get significant diarrhea. It's a class effect. It's clearly a class effect. So I think there's much to be learned. Let's continue with this case, though, because this patient then, as you say, progressed and went on sunitinib. So this patient, eventually he progressed on serafinib, and after some additional experimental trials with non-VEGF-targeted therapies, went on sunitinib, on just commercial sunitinib, and now has been on sunitinib for more than a year and a half, 
once again with good response, control of his disease. And he has had, in many ways, a lot less toxicity from the diarrhea and skin perspective. And in this case, the fatigue perspective has also not been particularly problematic. But he's had even worse problems with his hypertension and, in fact, had developed the need for a stent and, you know, came to me and said, yeah, well, you know, when I went to my place in Colorado, I had this chest pain. It sort of went away when I went back home to Kansas, which I said, uh, well, maybe you ought to go see your cardiologist. And sure enough, he had a significant stenosis and required stent placement. And, you know, at least in this case, after he had a stent placed, his hypertension got a little bit easier to control. So I think it just points out that we have to control and we have to pay attention to the cardiac issues. Now that we're getting long-term patients, there's something that the practicing docs need to dig into. They need to be aware of this stuff. It's a different world out there for chronic therapy. Well, one of the things that comes out of this discussion, which unfortunately I think is something that's happening already in the community much more than I think we all would like, is that a patient gets a set of side effects with one drug, the doctor and the patient don't like it, let's try the other drug. And without having any endpoint as to the first drug, they switch to another drug, and maybe that's better and they stay on that for a while, or maybe after a while they don't like that either and they switch to a third drug or maybe switch back to the first drug. And by the time the patient gets to an academic medical center to consider a VEGF pathway resistant trial, they've been on a variety of different treatments and it's hard to really even know what to think about it. And so I think there really is a role for having some instructions about how to choose the right therapy for the patient and then how to make sure you've gotten as much out of that treatment as possible before you switch. Nick, can you talk about the two papers I asked you to review on the combination of sunitinib and bevacizumab? Well, these are very interesting papers. I was glad that you juxtaposed them. The senior author on the Feldman paper, this is Bob Mozart, of course, is here, so I'm obviously going to be eager to hear what he has to say. The abstract reported that there was chronic therapy with bevacizumab and sunitinib. This was a dose-escalating phase one, a very nicely designed, I would add, dose-escalating phase one. Their sunitinib dose went from 25 milligrams, 37.5, and 50 intermittent, with bevacizumab at 10 milligrams per kilogram fixed dosing every two weeks. So it was very clean, well-designed. The DLT definitions were nicely prospectively designed. And what was interesting, it was also a disease-specific. They could have no prior sunitinib. And they did get some unusual histologies of these patients, broke it down by risk category. And there was, in my opinion, and I'll let Bob also comment, there was a very apparent, clear dose toxicity pattern. The higher the sunitinib went, the greater the number of sunitinib dose reductions had to occur. So there were no dose reductions at the 25. There were 33 either dose reductions or discontinuations at the 37.5. At the 50, there were almost two-thirds of the patients either had to be discontinued or had to have dose reductions. But what was interesting, other than the fact that there was a very high response rate, it was a 40, almost 50-some percent response rate, so it was a highly active regimen, 
were these unusual toxicities, particularly at the higher doses. 83% of patients in the highest cohort had hypertension, 50% had proteinuria, 50% had thrombocytopenia, 20% had posterior leukoencephalopathy that was reversible, and probably most importantly, there were a number of patients, 17 of them, who had microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. So the warning was that although this microangiopathic hemolytic anemia in, I think they had five patients, was reversible, it gave them pause and could not recommend the full dose of sunitinib and bevacizumab. And that led to the decision by one of the pharmaceutical companies to not push that combination forward. So the Feldman paper was in kidney cancer patients only who had had a nephrectomy. So these are in uninephrectomized patients. In contrast, the Cooney design was also an investigator-initiated trial design, but they varied both the sunitinib and the bevacizumab. So their sunitinib starting dose was, again, 25, then 37.5, then 50, but they started with a slightly lower dose of bevacizumab at 5, and again had clean endpoints, but their toxicity was not near as significant. They had virtually no grade 4 toxicity. They did not report much in the way of hypertension except one case. And so it was like, well, I don't understand. And they recommended that you could do sunitinib at 50 milligrams and bevacizumab at 10. Did they, they report on responses? Yeah, they had a very nice response rate. But remembering that they had allowed a variety of different tumor types, but a 25% response rate in, although they didn't produce a waterfall plot in the kidney cancer patients, they only had six kidney cancer patients, so I don't want to say a lot, but at least it appears that all three of the six responded. The interesting subtypes were that they had adrenal cancer, where there was a major response that they visualized on their poster, couple of stable disease patients. And then in bladder cancer, they had some nice responses. I think they had three bladder cancer patients and two responded. So they focused more on the response rate and didn't appear to have as much toxicity, at least even at their poster. When I talked to Dr. Rini, he didn't describe much toxicity, whereas Bob's group with one kidney saw substantially more toxicity. So, Bob, oncologists obviously have a long history of being interested in combinations, and I know there's a lot of interest in combinations of biologics and disappointment when this paper, you know, got a lot of publicity in terms of the toxicity, and I was curious what your take is. Is this combination dead? What do you think about this other paper? What do you think is going on? Well, I think it was very enthused about the combination based on the fact that they're both active agents. Putting them together, I had hoped that perhaps this would even lead to a complete responses which have been lacking with the targeted agents as monotherapies. And in point of fact, the regimen did show a high amount of efficacy. The response rate was high, except for it was a phase one trial. Although when we looked at the median progression-free survival for the entire population, it was still only on the order of sunitinib alone, 10 or 11 months. Not that you can make comparisons across studies, but certainly it wasn't a dramatic progression-free survival. What was impressive was the toxicity profile for the two agents given together. All the patients on the study I personally treated and followed closely for toxicity, and I was very much impressed by the hypertension with including the two together. 
So we were able to manage hypertension through aggressive antihypertensives, but as time went on, these other toxicities became apparent, and they were serious toxicities. What do you think about the other paper, though, the Cooney paper? You know, I'm not so sure what to make of it. I mean, we can propose that they're seeing less toxicity because there's other types of tumors and that kidney cancer may be more predisposed to this toxicity because VEGF is an important role in glomerular filtration. But from the standpoint of kidney cancer, I would not be comfortable with proceeding with this combination, and it certainly didn't seem to be one that would be adapted to community use. Mike? I think the two points, one, that the patients with kidney cancer had probably less renal function because of one kidney, and they probably stayed on therapy on average longer because they were more likely to respond, and a lot of the side effects happened several cycles in, potentially explains the difference. I think it's important to point out that this is not a side effect that's completely out of the blue. This, in many ways, resembles what you would see with preeclampsia. And preeclampsia is a disease that's associated with circulating levels of the VEGF receptor. And so binding of VEGF in the blood. So it just potentially could be an indication of chronic starving of normal tissues of VEGF may precipitate these type of reactions. So actually, I want to flip over, Dan, to your paper, because it was another ASCO presentation that got a lot of attention, the paper by Worf, looking at RAD001. We've been talking about combinations all morning, and I think this is the other class of combination that we haven't addressed yet, but is, I think, extremely promising and going forward now in more randomized trials. And this is a combination of a VEGF antibody, bevacizumab, with an mTOR inhibitor, Everolimus, and the treatment of advanced renal cell carcinoma. It's by the Sarah Cannon Research Institute group and their affiliates. And this was a single-arm phase two study that looked at two groups of patients. They termed group A patients, patients who had no prior VEGF therapy for metastatic renal cell carcinoma, and then group B patients, patients previously treated with either serafinib and or sunitinib, so prior TKI failures or prior TKI-exposed patients. To Mike's point, I don't think we can really necessarily call them failures per se, but at least uh, prior exposure to those agents. And then patients were treated with bevacizumab, 10 milligrams per kilogram IV every two weeks, and Everolimus or RAD001, 10 milligrams daily. So a phase one study had already been completed and demonstrated reasonable tolerability of both agents at full dose. So this was a phase two study, and uh, I believe they looked at a total of 59 patients and they have the demographics in here that the median age was 65, 76% were Mozart intermediate prognostic scores, and 73% had prior previous nephrectomy, and 71% had at least eight weeks on treatment and were valuable. And then they report on the results of 38 patients here in terms of the two groups, group A and group B. So what they demonstrate in the group A patients, so these are the previously untreated patients receiving bevacizumab and everolimus, a 23% partial response rate with another 43% of patients demonstrating a minor response. That would be equivalent to your waterfall curve plot showing some decrease but not a partial response. Another 10% of patients with stable disease, again, constituting maybe some very small amount of disease regression or just flat tumor sizes. And then 7% of patients with progression and 17% unavailable 
with a nine-month progression-free survival. In the group B population, they have 11% partial response. Again, these are the second or third line treated patients, then TKI exposed patients, an 11% partial response rate of 28% minor response and 44% stable disease in a six-month progression-free survival. That's the published abstract. When you actually look at the presentation from ASCO, so now this is, you know, six months later, the data actually looks, it's a more mature data, data looks actually quite a bit different. So if you look now, they're reporting on 30 patients in the previously untreated group A group now. They still have that 23% partial response rate, but their progression-free survival is now up to 12 months. And if you look in the previously exposed, previously treated patients, they're now up to 29 patients. And interestingly here, they have partial response rates now up to 17%, another high percentage, 59% with stable disease. And they have a progression-free survival rate of 11 months. Now, these are non-randomized trials. These are two groups that are essentially, it's really one study arm. So I think anytime you're evaluating progression-free survival in sort of an unblinded setting like this, you have to be a little bit careful. Also, I think when you're dealing with relatively small numbers, you know, phase two numbers here, 30 patients, the confidence intervals around those progression-free survivals can be pretty significant. But to put this into comparison, and I think Bob will talk about the Everolimus data in the prior sunitinib and serafinib-treated patients, where the median progression-free survival is about four months, this 11-month progression-free survival in this so-called second or third-line setting is definitely intriguing. It is by far not definitive, but I think it clearly crosses the bar to say we should study this in randomized settings. What other information, Bob, do we have about the combination of BEV with an mTOR inhibitor? There was a phase one study of BEV plus temsorolimus that was reported by Jaime Merchant at ASCO in 2007. And that was a very small study. I believe there was only about 10 patients or so. But he was able to give full doses of both together in combination. That went on to randomized trials. There's a randomized phase two trial going on in France and a large randomized first-line study that's going on in U.S., but predominantly in Europe and outside the U.S., comparing that combination of temsorolimus plus BEV versus bevazivimab plus interferon. What do you think in general about this strategy of combining BEV with an mTOR inhibitor? Where do you think it's heading? Of the combinations that we've looked at so far, the phase one data with TEM and BEV and this phase two data support the fact that the two can be given combination with a relatively good safety profile. These are the combinations that have been studied that full doses have been given together in combination but we don't have any definitive information on comparative efficacy. Any gut feeling? Or Dave, what do you think about this strategy? I think this is interesting, and it may allow us to answer the question about what gets married to BIF. And we have questions about its effect and efficacy as a single agent in a whole range of diseases. We have questions about pairing it with interferon, where we have most data in the first line. And I think that the first line study based on a single phase one and then phase two experience, if you like, from Sarah Cannon is one can say gutsy in that it's taking a risk. But 
I think that obviously the companies that produce these agents are interested in trying to get them into the first line. It also looks like it has reasonable second line activity and that should also be followed up on. So I think it's interesting. The Tim Srilimus bit of data we're just going to have to see. Mike? Yeah, well, I think this is a first real look at what we would call horizontal combinations where drugs are hitting two separate targets and we can see that you can give full doses of both agents when you do that, which is encouraging, as opposed to hitting the VEGF pathway twice where you've had trouble and had to reduce doses. In the first line, in order for this combination to be useful, it's going to have to be better than a sequence of a VEGF pathway inhibitor and a TOR inhibitor. And so the bar is much higher when you're using a horizontal combination in terms of what the result is going to be because you're potentially burning two treatment strategies with one therapy and you're potentially exposing patients to two drugs for a longer period of time than if they got them in sequence. And you're certainly adding the expense of having those drugs delivered for a long period of time. So it remains to be seen whether just beating sunitinib with this combination in the first line would be useful. On the other hand, in the second line, I think there's a very important question that's being addressed and we get some inkling from this clinical data. We know that Everolimus has activity compared to placebo in the second line, as we will talk about, but the real question from a scientific standpoint that's very important for antiangiogenic therapy, particularly in kidney cancer, is whether keeping the VEGF pathway blocked has an advantage. And this is an opportunity to use this regimen compared to what is now the standard Everolimus to see whether you gain some clinical benefit from keeping the VEGF pathway blocked. And knowing that not only will help us understand a lot about this disease, but also potentially think about antiangiogenic therapy and other diseases. Yeah. And I just want to follow, I think those excellent points that Mike brings up. I didn't get a chance to summarize the toxicity. Right, right. L- let me just do that real quickly because I think it reinforces what Mike has just said, that the toxicity seems to be additive, but not necessarily synergistic, meaning that these seem to be a little bit different in terms of their toxicity profiles, and they don't seem to necessarily be worsening each other. So when you look, fatigue, they both do cause some fatigue. So there we do see some additive fatigue. We see about 60% have grade one, grade two fatigue. Bev causes fatigue? You can see some fatigue with bevacizumab, yeah. And then you can see about 7% grade three fatigue. So not terrible, not as bad as we saw with Bev interferon, but a little bit more than we see with either agent alone. Hypertension, 24% grade one, grade two, really not any worse than we see with bevacizumab. Same thing with proteinuria, 15% grade one, grade two, 17% grade three. That might speak to the chronicity of exposure, again, to this regimen, and some of that proteinuria is a delayed effect. Mucositis is 47% grade one, grade two, maybe a little bit higher than we see with mTOR inhibitors alone, but mostly grade one, grade two, only 7% grade three. And then diarrhea, 27% grade one, grade two. So again, similar to what you see with mTOR inhibitors alone. Hyperlipidemia, very common with mTOR inhibitors, 66% grade one, grade two, but only 3% grade three. So I think it just speaks to sort of adding the two toxicities together rather than multiplying them. And I think the point to that combination is that maybe the reason why these agents pair so well together is because they're both so very specific. mTOR inhibition in this case with the serolimus 
platform, if you will, is really blocking just on mTOR by sequestering it to the FK binding protein 12. There's really no other off-target proteins that we know of affected by this. Similarly, bevacizumab blocking as an antibody just on one protein. So you're not getting that sort of cumulative off-target effect that we're seeing with some of the more promiscuous multi-targeted agents. And I think that's why we still have a therapeutic index here. But I agree with what Mike said, that therapeutic index is probably going to be most justifiable in the second-line setting. That's where our progression-free survivals are very short, you know, two to four months, and where I think the impact of a combination is probably going to be better seen than up front, even if you show an improvement from, say, you know, 11 months to 13 months. Is it worth the added expense and toxicity? Is that going to really translate to overall survival? That's going to be a harder sell. So I think where these may play out first is in that sort of second-line setting. Their trial, uh, randomized phase two, is going to go up front. And that's interferon BEV versus RAD001 BEV. And, you know, that's up front, but I agree that with you. That trial's up and running? That's up and running. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Can you go through that again? Interferon BEV versus RAD001 BEV. And I don't know if that is widely open. A lot of centers are just getting it through their IRBs and so on. But it's a very nicely designed trial. It's modestly powered, 300-some patients or so. And it will give us at least a clue as to whether RAD001 and BEV can outperform the interferon BEV. Now, as Dan was reciting the toxicities, one of the things that I think everyone should be aware of is that hyperlipidemia and hypertension are not good combinations. And you certainly see a substantial amount of hyperlipidemia with any of these mTOR inhibitors. So let's stay tuned for the chronic toxicity story. Interesting. And so, again, the questions from the docs, the number one one was their interest in combinations, but the other was the sequence. Major questions, particularly once they get into the second and third line. So there were a couple papers we wanted to talk about from that perspective. First, Dave, your paper by Shepard, and then Bob will go to the RAD001 paper. So Dave, can you talk about the Shepard paper? Sure. What they did here was they looked at the patients who had received either prior sunitinib or prior BEV for their renal cancer and then their subsequent response to serafinib. And what they determined was that about half of them, I think 52%, seemed to have some element of disease control and they define the tumor burden reduction rate, TBRR, in these patients as around half, which is interesting because we're talking about this issue of sequential therapy. This is a prospective trial where previously we just had anecdotal evidence. None of the patients here actually manifested a partial response, so they didn't reach that level, but a number of them clearly benefited from subsequent therapy. And from that perspective, this fits with what we see in clinical practice where there's a particular switch. And I think that's a short summary of this. I think how do we take this across in a clinical practice? Well, I think that when patients fail one or other drug, there is some basis to switching them to something else that perhaps targets the VEGF pathway in a slightly different way or has some other off-target effects. One can argue that serafinib has some effect on the RAS-RAF pathway going through MEC. 
as well. And the other issue here was that I found most interesting from this presentation, where bearing in mind it's not randomised, but that hand-foot-skin reactions seem to be more common in patients that had previously been treated with BEV as opposed to sunitinib. And that may have to do with some sort of setting of the VEGF axis in the patient where they're more sensitive. And the issues here are important because, as we've discussed, there's a balance between the efficacy or the period of disease control as measured here by tumour burden reduction rate that you get and what your cost is in terms of toxicity. And I think that certainly the rate of hand-foot-skin reaction here was relatively high compared to what we've looked at. There did not appear to be a difference in terms of control of the tumour related to what prior treatment they'd had. So, Walter, can you talk a little bit about how you think through the sequencing of first, second, third, fourth-line therapy? So, I've begun to think about this not so much as lines of therapy and have thought about this in regards to the two major pathways we're targeting, the VEGF pathway and the mTOR pathway targeting therapy. And I think as we've talked about today, I think one of our biggest challenges is a definition of resistance to a particular VEGF pathway targeted agent. We don't really know what we mean by resistance. And certainly we know that there's a you know, a group of patients that's somewhere between about a third or a fourth of patients who have rapidly progressive disease when they're exposed to one of these agents. Those are patients who are primarily resistant, and they're probably different. And then we have other patients who either have a response and then slowly begin to grow or whose cancer may be inhibited or whose growth may be inhibited to a certain degree. And at what point we say the resistance, I think, is complex. And I think that's something that we're going to have to try to define. And what we know so far, I think, is that one can use sequential VEGF pathway targeted agents, whether it's better to give a break and go back to the original one, whether it's better to go to a different tyrosine kinase, whether it's important to go from a receptor inhibitor to a ligand binding, namely the bevacizumab. I think these are all relevant questions, and I think what we know at this point simply is to say that one can do this and one does see anti-tumor effect. And I would just go back a little bit to what Mike had to say, that I think it's important to try to make the maximum use of an agent prior to switching to another agent. In other words, a little bit of toxicity should not prompt us to switch to another drug. What about the issue of VEGF rebound? You know, we hear that talked about. I've heard it talked about in breast cancer. Do you think that that exists? Do you think it exists in renal cancer, Dan? It's not a common phenomenon, but I think one of the nice things that sunitinib has taught us with a four-week-on, two-week-off drug exposure is that there is a subset of patients who do exhibit this I don't like to call it a tumor flare. I like to think of it as more of a rebound effect because I think it probably speaks more to the edema around tumor lesions than it does actual disease growth that can happen during those break periods. And I personally find that a very strong pharmacodynamic evidence of disease response when we see that. And in general, it's something that in many cases it can be in an asymptomatic setting, a perhaps cutaneous lesion or a subcutaneous lesion showing some increase or whatnot. But in some cases, it can be associated with some real clinical concerns, as in the case I have here. And I think in those circumstances, a more continuous exposure 
to the inhibitory agent makes a lot more sense. I actually want you to present your case but first. Dave, can you give us a little bit more practical insight into clinically? You know, I think Walter had a great you know, sort of overview of some of the things he thinks about. Can you kind of drill down a little bit more about how you make these decisions? Well, I think quite honestly, it's difficult. What I think about is that patients benefit in a survival sense from inhibition of the VEGF pathway. And I think to get that benefit, you've got to do it for a minimum time to see whether they'll have some sort of response. And I think that's probably about three months. I think there is some time in which you have to start these agents in the majority of patients, but not all, particularly if they're asymptomatic and not progressing rapidly. And then probably the therapy is best delivered in a chronic manner. We don't know about breaks. And so I think about trying to deliver VEGF in a for as long as I can to try and get the maximal benefit for my patients. So you start with sunitinib usually? Yeah, I'll start with sunitinib. And let's uh, assume the patient has a response, does well, and then progresses. If they've responded and progressed, I break them into two groups. If they're on full dose sunitinib and they've progressed, I will look for another agent either on a clinical trial or that's an instance where I would look at the Everlimus data in the second, third line that we're about to hear about and certainly move towards that. If the patient has responded to sunitinib and then I've had to drop the dose because they're not tolerating it so well, I would look at another VEGF TKI. In this case, the one we have available is serafinib. And I think there's some benefit in giving that to those patients. I think they are more likely to respond or have disease control. Now, the difficulty coming up is that I think fairly rapidly we're going to have more than just two VEGF TKIs. We're going to have pazopinib, and we've heard a little bit about exitinib, and I think each of those are very exciting drugs. And the question is then, what do you do? And we do get some help in that regard, or there's some coming up, and you said that community oncologists are interested in hearing about the trials. Well, I think there's two they should know about. One is the STAR trial, which is a comparison of temsorolimus to serafinib for patients that have previously been treated with sunitinib and come off that drug due to progression or intolerance. And that study is accruing now. And then the other study is the ACCESS study, which is a comparison of exitinib and serafinib for patients that have failed any one of a number of standard first-line therapies. So it could be sunitinib, it could be bevanidoferon, or could be temsorolimus for the poor risk patients. And comparing treatment in a prospective manner for sequential therapy between two VEGF TKIs. And so we'll start to get some comparative evidence from that. Now, can you usually get reimbursement for bevan interferon? The reimbursement for interferon is never a problem, even though it was never formally approved by the FDA. Approval for BEV has been very variable and has become much more tightly regulated by insurers in, in California. I'm not sure about what the experience is in the rest of the country. So, Nick, where do you think BEV or BEV and interferon would fit in if it were easily accessible in terms of, again, the sequence of things? Well, the only level one evidence we have for BEV interferon is first line. And I think that's currently the only place that I would recommend it. Second line, there's just no data. And as David just said, the number of trials opening in the second line space, particularly the STAR and the ACCESS trials, are going to soak up a majority of those patients. So I think most of the trial designers, including cooperative groups and pharmaceutical companies, have sort of shied away from trying second-line trials, although there's some exceptions in the cooperative groups such as SWOG and CLGB, and Walter has actually got a trial design going forward in CLGB that he probably should talk about. 
What's that, Walter? Well, so we have a proposal that's been made of testing everolimus versus the combination of everolimus bevacizumab in patients with prior VEGFR TKI therapy. It's on the table. It's not yet been fully approved, and we're hopeful that we'll be able to bring that forward. Mike? I just want to make two quick points. Because the target of the VEGF pathway inhibitors, at least the principal target, is on endothelial cells, and that we're getting some indication that the resistance to this is relative. And it's possible that a drug holiday, as we talked about before, or maybe switching to another treatment, and patients don't show response to that, it might still be possible that if you came back to a potent VEGF pathway inhibitor, you might still see some benefit just because it's not an absolute resistance that you might see in, let's say, a GIST tumor or a lung cancer that develops a mutation or you select for a mutation. But the second point is that I think that we may also have some opportunity to look at schedules because of that opportunity to take breaks. And it's possible that continuous therapy may not be the optimal way of giving any of the VEGF pathway blockers. And so I think that's something we need to pay attention to in the future. I think we should maybe go to your case, Dan, before we get to the RAD paper. So can you present that? This is a 44-year-old female who presented to a primary care provider back about a year ago, August 07, complaining of about three weeks of a non-productive cough that she thought was related to allergies. A chest X-ray, however, revealed multiple pulmonary lesions in a subsequent CT scan showed multiple pulmonary masses and a left renal mass. Her past medical history was relatively unremarkable and no family history of kidney cancer. She'd worked as a secretary, smoked three to five cigarettes a day, and had two children, one 17 and one age four. She underwent a left nephrectomy, revealing a 7.6-centimeter renal cell carcinoma, clear cell carcinoma, moderately differentiated pathologic T2 tumor. And two days after her surgery in the postoperative setting, she developed increasing shortness of breath and cough. A spiral CT to rule out a pulmonary embolus revealed no pulmonary embolus, but rapidly progressive pulmonary masses, now each several centimeters larger in size, and one prominent about six centimeter right hilar mass that had resulted in marked narrowing of the airway and a mass right into the bronchus intermedius, as well as a left superhylar mass. So really rapidly progressive pulmonary disease within a just a couple of days after her surgery and within a month or so of her diagnosis. She was seen and underwent radiation therapy by a radiation oncologist. She had a hypofractionated course of 400 centigrades a day for five days to that right hilar obstructive mass. And then I saw her as soon as she left the hospital, and about two weeks after her surgery, we started her on sunitinib, 50 milligrams daily, four weeks on, two weeks off. And she tolerated this reasonably well. I should say up front, you know, she had anemia, she had clearly a decreased performance status, and she had metastasis at diagnosis. So she was really somebody teetering on an intermediate to poor risk, depending on her performance status, which was changing over this time frame. Looking um, back, I yeah. mean, it's always easy to use the sort of retrospectoscope. Right. But, I mean, what do you think about the idea of taking her in a nephrectomy? You know, I think had I realized how quickly her tumor were progressing, I probably wouldn't have done that. Although, you know, she recovered very quickly from the surgery. She's a young woman, and she really had primarily pulmonary disease. So, you know, looking at her, I think it was still 
probably somebody that could benefit from a nephrectomy, although clearly she didn't get any response to that. So in retrospect, no, I wouldn't have done it, but I think I don't know that I would have known how she would have responded in any other way. So in this case, you know, we started her on sunitinib. She had a lot of grade one, grade two toxicities, taste changes, oral tenderness, heartburn, fatigue, diarrhea. And by day 28, she had already shown evidence of response. Her breathing was better. We got a CT scan because she had such rapidly progressive disease and had already demonstrated disease regression, not a partial response, but some decrease. However, within a week of stopping the drug, she developed severe chest pain and progressive shortness of breath. And we didn't rescan her, but we restarted her Sutent again a week early because she had recovered from all her grade one, grade two toxicity. So you thought she was progressing? She had a chest x-ray that showed wow. some evidence of some... Now, this is chest x-ray to CT, so it's a hard comparison. How long had she been off therapy? She had been off therapy a week, and she felt wow. better on drug than she felt off drug. Huh. And that's really, you know, clinically the indication. These patients, generally, it's not subtle. They'll tell you, you know what, I want to go back on the drug. I feel a lot worse. Huh. And so we put her back on, and she tolerated that regimen pretty well of a four weeks on, one week off regimen at 50, and we did that for three cycles. And then she developed some worsening toxicity, some worsening fatigue mucositis, not so much hand-foot syndrome, but fatigue mucositis. And for those reasons, we dose-reduced her to 37.5, and at that point switched to a continuous dosing regimen. And she did well on that for a couple more cycles, and then developed progressive disease about two months after that, about six months out or seven months out from starting on sunitinib with progressive lung lesions in the mediastinum and some new lesions. Her sunitinib was discontinued, and we started her on temsirolimus. And we did that based on the fact that she really was almost a poor-risk patient up front in retrospect and had fairly short response to sunitinib. And she, interestingly, within two days of getting her temsirolimus, was admitted to an outside hospital with severe shortness of breath and a CT that revealed new bilateral pulmonary effusions. Now, this is compared to the CT that she had three days before where she didn't have pulmonary effusions. It's possible that was related to the Timserolimus. Were they tapped? They were tapped, and they did get malignant cells back. But I think the bigger concern was the time frame coming off of sunitinib and if this was some sort of a VEGF withdrawal effect. And that's, you mean that's like really... a fluid shift or something? I mean, do you see that? You know, what happens with sunitinib is you can elicit increased levels of VEGF, and those increased levels of VEGF are typically blocked by the VEGF receptor inhibitor, sunitinib. But when the receptor inhibitor is withdrawn, it's possible that there's a period of time where the VEGF levels are still high, but the receptor is no longer inhibited. <laughs> particularly if we're using doses that are non-MTD doses, like 37.5, can lose that inhibition fairly quickly. And I think, you know, in this case, you might see that the pleural spaces are common spaces for VEGF levels to be high anyway and can drive a lot of this pleural edema. Mike? We've seen this in a number of patients, but we've also, I think it's more common in a patient like this who has a lot of disease and is really just struggling to stay on the yeah. treatment, and you potentially have kept her on therapy a little bit longer than what you might have done if you had had a readily available other treatment to switch her to. Right, right. And so, you know, in this scenario, we did something that's a little bit atypical, and that is we added bevacizumab to our temsolimus. Again, I wouldn't <laughs> consider this a standard for every patient, but I think under the circumstances of this rebound biology that we are seeing now on a TKI failure, 
we felt compelled to try this. We had phase one safety data. And she tolerated that okay. She actually got three cycles of that and had stable disease, stable clinical symptoms. But then in July of 08, started developing progressive shortness of breath, went on oxygen, and within about a three-week period of time, went from about, you know, two liters just at night to continuous oxygen, four to six liters. Went to the ER with progressive shortness of breath, and we held her drugs, and we initiated hospice care, and she died a couple of weeks later. I want to ask the group this question, but first, you, Dan, what's the message from this case? What do you think about what was going on here? Well, I think from the get-go, this was a really aggressive case. And it's interesting, Nick brought up the point that, you know, pathologies aren't always what they seem. You know, she had sort of a moderate-grade primary tumor, and yet she had this really progressive, rapid course in her lungs and in her lymph nodes in her chest. And I think the clinical course is what drove me to say right from the beginning, you know, this is somebody that, although we'd love to put her on Hydosol too. She's probably not a good candidate because of the multiple poor risk factors and the progression of disease. So we moved right to what we think is really our most effective therapy, these VEGF-targeted strategies that she got, I think, a reasonable response to. But when you look at patients up front that have some decrease in performance status, some anemia, those are poor prognostic factors for response and duration of response to sinitinib. And Bob has shown that. So this kind of five to seven month progression-free survival is about what you might expect for somebody with those poor risk factors going on a drug like sunitinib. And then her progression after that just is an acceleration of an already fast natural history. And unfortunately in her case, because it was really primarily lung-based disease, you know, she died before, you know, she developed other sites of progression and other organ systems. So, Bob, when she was initially treated with sunitinib, do you think she fell into the category of poor risk? And what about temsorolinus instead of sunitinib at that point? We don't have all the different laboratory and clinical parameters to actually categorize her, but it certainly appears from the clinical history and so forth that this is a poor risk patient. And I think that an important takeaway from this is that you know, although some of our patients are doing well, living for years now with options for multiple targeted therapies, there definitely remains a group of patients that have metastatic renal cancer, very aggressive disease, and progress either through the new targeted agents or within a very short time. And that's what my takeaway from this case, this patient lived only 10 months after diagnosis, a classic porous patient may have had a brief response to therapy, but ultimately, you know, died of a disease quite rapidly. With regard to the first-line treatment, the level one evidence, the large phase three trial supports use of temsorolimus. I think that's certainly an option, and that's considered the primary option because of the phase three trial. Sunitinib is also an option. In my own practice, if I feel patients will tolerate sunitinib, poor risk or not, I usually offer them sunitinib because the sunitinib has been associated with a higher response level than the temsorolimus. Temsorolimus tends to cause some disease shrinkage and is associated with prolonged survival, but hasn't quite been reported with the objective response rate. On the other hand, patients who are sick, who are ill, have difficulty taking pills, then I think temsorolimus is the optimal agent. Walter? So I just wanted to point out that we you know, have to judge our treatments more on the lack of data than any sort of 
positive data. So we say that, yes, there's phase three data for using temsorolimus in poor prognosis patients, and we just don't know the degree of benefit with the VEGF pathway-targeted therapy simply because there weren't enough patients on the trials to assess it. And that doesn't say that they're less effective. It just says we don't know. And I think that one of the really open research questions that are out there is trying to identify those patients most likely to benefit from a VEGF pathway-targeted therapy versus those that are most likely to benefit first from an mTOR-targeted pathway there are certainly some you know, preliminary data in the laboratory and in early clinical phase trials that suggest certain approaches, but nothing that I would suggest that I think is ready for prime time. Why don't we bring in the paper you presented at ASCO, Bob, looking at RAD001. This is a phase three trial of Everolimus, which has been referred to previously in publications as RAD001, compared to placebo in patients who had progressive disease on tyrosine kinase inhibitor therapy. It was a phase three trial, randomized, two to one, a double blind. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival. And for secondary endpoints, we looked at safety response and quality of life and overall survival. Now, the trial was stratified by prior number of VEGF or tyrosine kinase inhibitor therapy, since where patients were allowed multiple treatments they could have received sinitinib, serafinib, or both, as well as other agents, including bevazimab, cytokines, and chemotherapy. And they were stratified by a risk grouping that we had originally developed in patients who had been previously treated with cytokine therapy and then went on to novel agents. With the two-to-one randomization, the patients were treated and followed carefully by independent review of scans for progression-free survival If they progressed according to investigator assessment, they were unblinded, and the patients were on placebo received open-label Everolimus, which is a very important aspect of the trial since it confounds the survival endpoint. The study accrued rapidly, and at last year's ASCO, we reported the results of the second interim analysis, whereby the trial was closed because of the positive impact and progression-free survival of Everolimus compared to placebo. There were 272 patients randomized to Everolimus and 138 to placebo. And one aspect of the demographics to emphasize was the degree of prior treatment that the patients had received. About 25% of the patients in the study had received both sinitinib or serafinib before going on treatment. The other 75% had received one or the other. But there were a fair number of patients that also had prior cytokine treatments, bevazimab and chemotherapy. At the time of the second interim analysis, we found that the median progression-free survival by investigator assessment was 4.6 months compared to 1.8 months with the placebo. And similarly, by the independent review, there was a median progression-free survival of four months to Everolimus compared to 1.9 months with placebo. So it met the predetermined statistical design for a positive study. The hazard ratio was strong at 0.30. And in looking at the data, the proportion of patients that were estimated to be progression-free on the Everolimus arm was 26% compared to 2% at six months. With regard to the safety profile, it is a relatively well-tolerated agent. The common side effects that are associated with this are stomatitis, although this was generally mild. 
some skin rash, and the less common or even rare side effects that were noted that could potentially be severe were infections and pneumonitis. The toxicities to be alerted to with this agent in clinical use is the pneumonitis and the predisposition to severe infections in some patients, which is an uncommon side effect, but one that clinicians certainly need to be aware of. With regard to laboratory abnormalities, it does cause blood count suppression, but like the other mTOR inhibitors, the clinicians really need to be aware of the hypercholesterolemia and the hyperlipidemia and hyperglycemia that are associated with this class of agents because they need to be carefully monitored in their patients and controlled. Could you compare specifically Everolinus to Temsurolinus in terms of side effects, toxicity, and method of administration? Everolimus is a orally administered mTOR inhibitor. There's been different schedules that have been evolved. The schedule that's moving forward is a daily schedule. Temsurolimus is also an mTOR inhibitor. It's structurally very similar to both analogs of serolimus. It's administered weekly in an IV infusion. What about side effects and toxicity comparing the two indirectly? I don't think that it's fair to make a comparison, relatively speaking. The side effect profile of both is consistent and includes asthenia or fatigue, some stomatitis, rash, and they've both been associated with pneumonitis and infectious complications. But I don't think it would be fair at this point to compare one to the other with regard to frequency or intensity. When do you think maybe this agent's going to be available? And when it is available, or if it were available right now, how would you be utilizing an off-study? The availability, um, not sure on, you know, it's being either prepared for evaluation by regulatory authorities, or at least we anticipate so based on the phase three trial data. With regard to how I would use this agent, I would use this agent in patients who had had previous tyrosine kinase inhibitor therapy and had progressive disease. My own preferred paradigm of treatment would most likely for most patients be sunitinib and a time of progression, then move to the everolimus. As opposed to, for example, other choices? I think an alternate approach that would be taken by some would be sunitinib followed by serafinib and then everolimus. Since, strictly speaking, the trial data did include one or two prior tyrosine kinase inhibitors, my reservation with that is that we now have level one data for an mTOR inhibitor in patients who had progressed on TKI therapy, where we really have low level of data, if any, for benefit of serafinib following sunitinib. So, Mike, any thoughts about this paper? I think Bob discussed it very well. I think the one point that I think I'd like to emphasize is that the comparator in this study was placebo. And so, although Everolimus shows benefit, it shows benefit to nothing. And although that is the standard of care based on approval, very few people would actually receive nothing in that setting. And so this is a major benefit because it shows that resistance to TKIs and inhibition of the VEGF pathway does not preclude subsequent benefit from a TOR inhibitor, but I think it's a baby step in that direction. And this is now a low bar that could be potentially beat by a number of different treatments, including something that combines 
a VEGF pathway inhibitor with a TOR inhibitor. Dan? Just to mention that this study did have kind of a mixed population in terms of prior treatment, and many of the studies that David had mentioned earlier are looking at a strict second-line setting. So just a word of caution of comparing across Phase three studies in the future, we may not necessarily see this exact pretreatment profile for comparison. Many of the Phase threes that are going on right now don't include everolimus in that. So I think it's going to take future studies to answer those questions, but I agree with Mike that's the role for future studies in using now this as a new reference standard in this. Well, I, I would setting. also add, though, that this is real world. I yeah. mean, these patients have been extensively pretreated. There's one other sort of interesting component of this trial that was brought out by Bernard Escudier at the kidney cancer meeting, and that is looking at the median PFS for patients who had prior serafinib only versus patients who had prior sunitinib. And it looked like there was a significant difference. The PFS for patients who had only serafinib and then went to everolimus was close to six months versus 3.8 months for patients who had prior sunitinib. And so we could talk about what that means, yeah, what but it suggests that... <laughs> that Sinitinib probably is a little better at hitting its target and that when you're resistant to sinitinib, it may be harder to get effect with other therapies. And it's sort of, although this is all sort of reading between the lines and we need to sort this out, it supports the notion that sinitinib is better VEGF pathway inhibitor than serafinib. And my view is where all this is eventually going to go is you're going to use the best VEGF pathway inhibition you can first and exhaust that and then move to TOR inhibition. And this study supports that in that the patients have received a lot of different VEGF pathway inhibition. And the whole concept of first line, second line, third line needs to be abandoned in favor of pathway blocking, and then moving to another pathway blocker. And I would just say that, you know, some of these data also support the concept that it's the VEGF pathway that's the more critical therapeutic target in this disease, and that mTOR is in some ways a secondary target and raises the question, as you said earlier, Mike, of is continued VEGF pathway inhibition important even in patients who are, quote, resistant to the initial therapy? I'm going to actually ask you in a minute to talk about the paper presented by Brian Reaney on the CALGB study in a second. But I want to bring in your case, Dave. I thought that was fascinating, a case one. Okay, so this is a case of a patient we saw a couple of years ago who presented to the county hospital emergency room, a patient that does not have regular medical care. He'd had intermittent hematuria for more than a year and was described as having blackouts when he came in from his lodging where he lived in supported living. In actual fact, what was probably happening was he was having altered mental state issues. When evaluated in the emergency room, he had multiple lung nodules and he had a CT done of the head that showed multiple low attenuation areas suggesting METs. He, he was admitted and had an MRI that showed at least 50 discrete metastases measuring up to 10 millimetres with diffuse cerebral edema virtually throughout the whole brain. He also had a CT scan of his body that showed a 10 centimetre hypervascular mass in the right kidney, retroperitoneal adenopathy and multiple lung metastases. 
he was commenced on dexamethasone and planned for whole brain radiation. He improved radically on dexamethasone and was discharged to his lodging with a plan to start radiation. And a prescription was sent off to get him uh, VEGF TKI, which was delivered to his lodge. And uh, Which one? It was serafinib in this case. And from that perspective, he was given follow-up to come back to the oncology clinic with instructions, written instructions, not to start the serafinib until he came back. As it happened, it arrived, and he commenced it the day it arrived at full dose and then went to start radiation therapy five days later, got that over 10 fractions, and was seen by us subsequently in the oncology clinic, not bringing any medications with him, but obviously having some hand-foot syndrome at that time. And so the question was asked as to whether he'd actually started. He also had somewhat greater skin reaction around the scalp than we'd expected and was referred by his primary care doctor to the dermatology clinic where they gave him some silver sulfadiazine for his scalp which helped things. In any case, he continued on serafinib and was tolerating that reasonably well. Some two to three months later, he got an MRI scan of the brain and was restaged for the visceral disease. The CT showed mild regression in lung and retroperitoneal disease. His primary was the same. But the MRI scan was reported as normal. And we didn't quite believe this. And so we reviewed it. And in actual fact, he did still have some minor edema, but his central nervous system had manifested a complete response at that time. He's been scanned several times subsequently. And he, at last follow-up, he was 14 months into his serafinib therapy, still had stable disease in the lung and retroperitoneum, and still maintains uh, negative disease status in the CNS with normal sensorium and otherwise normal function. So the issue here is the VEGF TKI sensitization to radiation therapy. We've had patients not exactly the same as this, but similar on sunitinib. And we had one that was accidentally given radiation therapy, accidentally, but purposely given radiation therapy, but accidentally, and that we didn't mean to have him on pazopinib at the time, who actually had a very major response in a bone lesion that we had to reconstruct because it all sort of melted away. Just uh, looking at his brain, how unusual would it have been to see this response just from the radiation therapy? I think normally you end up with some residuum. This is a very unusual case in that, I mean, he had, I've never seen this many brain lesions in renal cancer. You see it in melanoma and occasionally in lung cancer, breast cancer perhaps at times. But, and so from that perspective, this guy had a large volume of disease in his brain. And to see that response from whole brain radiation therapy at a standard dose, I don't think you'd ever expect to see a complete response. I'm sure it happens, but I just haven't seen it. So we felt that this patient got significant radiosensitization from serafinib and was an interesting experience. What was his brain toxicity to the radiation? Well, his brain toxicity was actually negligible. He's not the sort of chap who'll complain about a lot. And so essentially nothing. I mean, when he went on to the dexamethasone as his initial treatment in hospital, he improved markedly. He had he, altered mental status? He, well, he had disorientation for how to get back to where he lived. He knew who he was and he was orientated in time and place. He also identified the president and prospective candidates for presidency in this election. So he was doing reasonably well compared to some of our other patients. But he's actually highly intelligent and, you know, is now functional. Over time, he's had some necrosis in that primary tumour in the inferior pole. He's not had hematuria or pain. There's not really been a shrinkage in that lesion. He's about 20% down in his retroperitoneum and lungs, certainly not a partial response elsewhere. 
So this is the remarkable thing, obviously, is this CNS response. And I've never seen anything like that in kidney cancer with such disease. So really, you know, we wonder whether that radio sensitization is what's going on. But the other point, I think, is, and this is a point for, I think, community practitioners, is if there is someone who's presenting with their primary tumor in place and has extensive symptomatic metastatic disease, it's probably better just to go start the therapy than to reflexively send them to surgery to remove the primary. That paradigm was based on patients receiving cytokines. We don't know to what extent it applies to patients receiving VEGF pathway inhibitors. And even in patients receiving cytokines, if their metastatic burden was more of a problem than the disease in the kidney, we would go to systemic therapy first. Nick? Well, this brings up a bit of a sore point. I had also seen similar anecdotes and had proposed to one of the two firms that make serafinib an investigator-initiated trial of dose escalation serafinib with radiotherapy. And it became very difficult because of the restrictions placed upon us by the firm to complete the trial. So I opened up the trial eligibility criteria. We accrued rapidly, and then they again said, no, 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 it's not safe. So unfortunately, I've been unable to complete a prospective trial of serafinib and radiotherapy, but there is a lot of logic to it. They both target the endothelium, and there should be potentially some organ damage chronically, obviously, because if you're affecting the small vessels, you may get increased long-term fibrosis. But for patients with kidney cancer, and particularly a patient like this, this could be a much more effective approach. Do you think this is specific to serafinib, or you see the same no, thing with no, 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 no. No, I think that this is low-hanging fruit. I think that any of the companies that are developing TKI should explore the role of radiotherapy with these agents. Could you envision a situation, Dave, where, with this patient progressing in the future where you might try, in him, specifically radiation in serafinib? Well, it depends on the situation. I mean, I think that if he has a localized problem, we might do that. I mean, if he progresses, he'll get sunitinib in our system. There's no problem with that. At the time, we had difficulty accessing sunitinib for these patients. But if he developed a bone lesion that was symptomatic and he was still on serafinib at that time and we wanted to irradiate him, what would I do? Well, I would probably count that as progression and switch him over to sunitinib. Now, bone lesions a whole separate issue in this disease, and I won't go there. And do you normally continue the TKI through radiation? We will now, yes. We do, if possible. Yeah, and I'm I'm doing the same. I'm more and more convinced that it's safe and may, in fact, enhance radiation sensitization. But do we have the data? When when we give the CyberKnife treatment to CNS lesions, we usually give it during the two-week break. Huh, interesting. Um, What concerns do you have about overlapping? For just standard fractionation radiation treatment, we have seen no interaction that suggests that there's a problem with combining them. I mean, do you have a bunch of patients that you've continued serafinib through radiation therapy or sunitinib? Uh, No, there's been no... no Do you keep your patients on it? Yeah, I do not stop the... Although I must say I pause for the radiation to the CNS. That still is a somewhat of a concern. For example, if you had a spinal cord metastasis, And if you damage the small vessels, what about transverse myelitis? What about chronic fibrosis of those vessels? So I probably would not do what this patient did inadvertently. So you have a patient with a painful 
phony met bob that you want to radiate but yet has a lot of systemic disease would you use sunitinib or sunafenib concurrently with the radiation let's say a painful humerus no i wouldn't until there's safety information for the combination of radiation and sunitinib or serafinib, I do not give them together. In my practice, I treat with one and then the other, so I do not give them together. Walter, I asked you to talk about the CLGB study. So the CLGB study is really confirmation of the Escudier study of interferon with or without bevacizumab. It was designed in a very similar manner. It had survival as a primary endpoint, but with publication and presentation of the European Roche data, some of the progression-free survival data was presented at ASCO and is now in press, and essentially the results are almost equivalent. So one sees a dramatic improvement in progression-free survival that is on the order of the median is from eight and a half months in the combination and 5.2 months in the interferon alone arm, highly statistically significant, too early to assess survival, and too few patients in the poor prognosis cohort to determine whether there's truly a benefit in that group of patients. Any comments on that paper? I think this reinforces the Avoran data. We're really looking for the overall survival data from both Avoran and the CALGB study, and hopefully we'll see that in 2009. Okay, Mike, let's go on to your paper by Sossman. Sure. This is something we talked about earlier, so I'll be quick. This is a phase one trial of serafinib and bevacizumab looking at combination VEGF pathway blockade with a ligand binder and a VEGFR2 inhibitor. And as I mentioned before, putting this together was very hard for us to find a safe dose. We started at half doses of each agents and had some little bit of toxicity, but encouraged us to try to go a little bit higher. But we quickly got into more side effects and started to find that even the initial doses that we were administering, patients couldn't tolerate it for more than a couple of cycles. And eventually, after struggling and doing multiple amendments, we settled on the MTD being a quarter of the standard serafinib dose and half of the standard bevacizumab dose. I think the toxicity was largely enhanced serafinib toxicity with hypertension, hand-foot syndrome, diarrhea, fatigue, and weight loss. And it clearly seemed to be more than what would be seen with serafinib alone at those doses, so synergistic toxicity. We did not see any evidence, and we've looked pretty carefully and recently for microangiopathic hemolytic anemia in this combination of patients. The encouraging didn't thing... Didn't see it. Didn't see it. The encouraging thing was that the response rate was over 50%. 25 out of 48 patients exhibited a response, only four out of the 48 patients had evidence of disease progression, and this study included patients who had non-clear cell histologies. In addition, the median progression-free survival was 14 months. We are currently doing expansion phase two of the MTD, and this regimen in a slightly modified form, a higher dose of serafinib given five days out of seven, with five milligrams of bevacizumab is a component of the best trial that we talked about before that is ongoing. I think this gives an alternative way of inhibiting the VEGF pathway, whether 
this combination is better than what you could do with sunitinib or just equivalent remains to be seen. But I do want to make the point that I said before that it's possible that when you're inhibiting vertically, you don't necessarily have to beat the standard by as much as when you're inhibiting horizontally because you still have the options of all the other lines of therapy to consider afterwards. And so this may turn out to be something that looks encouraging in the best trial and maybe something that could be compared with sunitinib in the future. All right, so let's talk about the PILI paper. Okay, and this is just an abstract to follow up on. This is a phase one trial of a histone deacetylase inhibitor, varenostat, in combination with bevacizumab in patients with metastatic renal cell carcinoma. And this is based on some preclinical data that suggests that HDAC inhibitors may inhibit hypoxia-inducible factor 1-alpha. Could you just and briefly review what's known about HDAC inhibitors and specifically about varenostat? So varenostat, sometimes referred to as SAHA, is uh, sort of a first-in-class HDAC inhibitor, and there's several classes of HDAC inhibitors, those that primarily work on histone deacetylases and those that are more of deacetylase proteins that will work on other proteins besides just histones. So maybe, these are epigenetic? This is epigenetic. So this is histones are primarily the proteins in which DNA and chromatin is organized. And the process by which the DNA is unwound off of the histones and allowed to then allow for gene transcription is a process that's associated with acetylation. So deacetylation rewinds the DNA around the histones, and deacetylase inhibitors then result in the persistent unwinding of the DNA. And the thought is is that it's the winding up of genes that's essentially shutting off checkpoints that allow these cells, tumor cells that is, to grow and proliferate quicker or to perhaps suppress tumor suppressor genes that would be other checkpoints. And in putting varinostat together with BEV, any specific reasons to think they might be synergistic sort of theoretically other than they're two different mechanisms? Yeah, so just to complete the thought, so the DAC inhibitors, the deacetylase inhibitors work in the cytosol on other proteins, chaperone proteins and what have you, that may affect the protein stability of things like HIF1-alpha. So an HDAC inhibitor like varinostat may work both in the DNA level at the transcription level, as well as at the protein stability level to affect a protein target like HIF. Now, how does HIF connect with VEGF, the target for bevacizumab? Well, when you treat with bevacizumab and you block VEGF, presumably you're resulting in a decrease in the permeability of those tumors. You're not just blocking new vessel growth angiogenesis, potentially also blocking existing tumor vasculature and maybe changing the permeability of that vasculature. That creates a stress on the tumor, a decrease in blood flow, and a hypoxic state. And so agents like HIF can be upregulated to help the tumor cells survive that kind of stress. It's possible agents like HDAC inhibitors that affect that may help mitigate one of those survival mechanisms, if you will. It's also possible that that HIF drives more VEGF to help overcome the bevacizumab antibody to be another perhaps more chronic mechanism of resistance. So there's a couple of rationales to why a combination of blocking HIF would potentiate the duration and the treatment effects of a VEGF inhibitor. But this is a phase one study, really primarily looking at the safety, although also some pharmacodynamic endpoints. And so I believe in this study, they've uh, at this point in time had enrolled seven patients 
that were valuable. The best responses were stable disease. The toxicities in those patients were primarily thrombocytopenia grade 4, and then other grade 3 toxicities included anorexia fatigue, hemothorax, and pulmonary embolism. And so they looked at a number of pharmacodynamic endpoints, including histones isolated from peripheral blood mononuclear cells, some blood flow imaging by PET, and the VEGF levels in both platelet-poor and in plasma, and were able to show some decrease in the VEGF levels associated with the platelet-poor, but not the plasma VEGF levels. So I think in the end, what they're able to demonstrate is that the two agents can be given reasonably well together. They got up to 200 milligrams twice a day of varinostat, two weeks on, one week off, and full-dose bevacizumab. Whether or not this stable disease effect will look better in a more phase two larger patient population remains to be seen, but it does look like the agents can at least be combined together and may have some pharmacodynamic effect together. I would just take a second to take a breath before I want to go to your case, Nick, because I thought it was interesting, but just to take a breath and just think a little bit about the kinds of questions that you get from docs in practice about renal cell and anything that we haven't talked about. The kind of questions I get are exactly like Mike described, patients with extensive prior therapy, you know, and even though we are all experts, we don't see any obvious, clear next step. They've had temserolimus, it suited it, you know, they may even have had chemotherapy interferon. And so I continue to have a repertoire of new agents. Bob and I are doing a study with a new antibody that looks promising. We continue to have a stable of the phase one agents, but let's not forget that we're not curing the majority of these patients, and there's a continuous need for new therapies. Each one of our institutions provides those. I think the other thing is people's perception of this cancer has changed in the community dramatically. You think about the way they thought about it, Bob, you know, I don't know, three, four, five years ago. This is exciting. And, you know, phase one now, to me, if I'm a patient in that situation, you know, maybe it actually will benefit. Yeah, I think that a few years back, we really had little to offer our patients. Cytokines were really the only class of drug that showed any activity. And prognosis overall was quite poor. The average survival in patients coming to our centers was about 12 months. And now there's multiple drugs. There's basically an armamentarium that we can now offer the patients. I mean, we're seeing it in the clinic. When one treatment fails, we have other options to offer patients, and I think it's best reflected by the survival data in the Sunitinib study, where the survival is now you know, well over two years, two and a half years with that study long, and I think it's going to continue to increase as these other agents are incorporated into standard of care. Yeah. We're using these kinds of antiangiogenic agents, if you will, in combination with cytotoxics and other more common diseases. And here in kidney cancer, we're using them primarily as monotherapies and even mTORs as monotherapies. The reality is is that they don't fit neatly into the paradigm of cytotoxic or hormonal-based therapy. The reality is they may represent, at least as monotherapies, a little bit of a different paradigm in terms of efficacy, in terms of, as Walter pointed out, chronicity, and even resistance. Remember that you know this biology that we think we're impacting is its tumor biology, but it's not necessarily epithelial cell biology. And so some of these are paracrine effects and things that, to some extent, chemotherapies may also affect, but haven't been how we've primarily developed them 
as agents. As Walter said, we've primarily thought of our therapies as hit them hard for three to six months of cycles of therapy, and then you get a remission, you take a break. And this is really different. This isn't hormonal therapy where it's you know five or ten years either. It's something in between. And I think that's going to take some experience, both on our end and on the community's end, to understand how to optimize. Nick? I would also recommend that careful pathologic review be conducted by a skilled expert. We have just in the last six months identified two patients who had the XP11 translocation. I had not seen that in my years at University of Chicago. What is that? Well, it's... (laughs) Exactly. It's a rare translocation tumor subtype that is apparently driven by hepatocyte growth factor signaling pathway. And it is a very unusual histology that is a combination of papillary, hobnailing, like an adenoid cystic, and some clear cells. And that patient has gone on to be tried on sunitinib with no response in spite of a very high performance status and minimal disease. Walter, from a more macro perspective, thinking back to Dan's case, what about the issue of removing the primary in the face of metastatic disease? You know, that was kind of our reflex. It's always been our reflex, but, you know, we didn't really have any much alternatives a few years ago. Do you think that strategy, you know, still, you know, stands in the same place? Well, we've discussed the lack of data, but I think on a practical basis, for a patient that has a good performance status, fits into the good prognosis group, and my rule of thumb is if at least half of the tumor mass is within the primary, I still recommend that they go ahead and do the nephrectomy. Have any of you seen actual objective responses to removing a primary? There's no objective responses of the systemic disease by removing the primary. I think the reason to remove the primary, if it's a large burden of disease, is to prevent further morbidity. And, you know, the logic here being that these agents lead to tumor shrinkages but don't lead to complete responses. And so that's the logic here. Yeah, my case one was just that. I mean, we have two renal cancer experts, myself and Wolf, at, <laughs> and we clearly did not agree on how to handle this patient with a big primary, with a parotid metastasis, with bone metastasis. Can you kind of go through that case? Yeah, of- it's, it's an interesting case. It's the Maserati salesman, young guy, diabetic, but otherwise fairly healthy, who had back pain for six months, and no one did anything other than just x-ray his back. He's 46 years old? Yeah. And so they took him to surgery to repair is what they thought was a disc and degenerative back disease and found metastatic renal cell. And oops, one of those sort of things, did a CT scan, showed the primary, and then he pointed out, you know, my parotid's been, <laughs> I've got this parotid mass, and sure enough, we finally aspirated that, and it was a well-differentiated clear cell. And we debated about whether to radiate his spine, which we did, and then to further delay his disease, or disease systemic therapy, or to take his kidney out. And ultimately, I decided, since he was my patient, that I would start him on a trial, and he was able to go on the continuous versus interrupted SUTEN trial. And he's done well on that. It's been almost nine or ten months now. But his primary is intact, and now he's not responding anymore, although he's not progressed. So the question now, again, is, do I take the kidney out now? I don't know. And the answer may never be known in a protection like this. Dave, any comments? I think this is a very interesting case and very controversial. And when you get a young patient with disseminated disease like this, it's often difficult to know what to do. 
And I think that the course of treatment's reasonable. What I would do now is I probably would take the kidney out because uh, we've just heard Nick telling us about these very rare cases and there's a cluster of these cases in the West. It may have something to do with the background ethnic issues in people that are in the West and where they've come from. But if it's something rare... What kind uh, of cases, though? The uh, XP1 one. The XP1 one case. You have tissue on this patient and it's clear cell. Yeah. Yeah. On this guy, it's clear cell. But I think one of the benefits of taking the kidney out is you get a huge chunk of tissue to look at. There could be heterogeneity there. And going forward with this patient, we're not going to give the patient cytokine therapy, although you might entertain second-line interleukin-2 if he's got good performance status. That's not without its risks, as we've, we've heard from our friends from Beth well, Israel. He's diabetic, and I, you know, I think now with the prior sutent, sunitinib therapy, I'm a little bit reluctant, but... I mean, we can all come up with fascinomas, but I think that one of the important issues to remember about kidney cancer, though, is that it is a highly heterogeneous disease, even in the untreated state, and that there is a significant minority of patients who have indolent disease with oligometastatic disease, where addressing the local disease issues is important. And these are patients who have one or two metastatic sites that may cause significant morbidity, and surgical or aggressive radiotherapy to address these sites is a standard of care and remains a standard of care, even in this age of multiple systemic drugs.